Thompson, Thompson, Thompson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I feel like, do you feel like you're not yourself? Yeah, well, I do when I'm in a dust storm in Egypt where I'm not I'll supposed explain. to go. Not since, I'll explain. Not since I'll 1967. Explain. Okay, but you, you, you agree with me. You, sometimes you just feel like you aren't yourself, right? You're, and you ever feel like just that things went wrong somewhere? That they aren't the way well, they're wait, supposed to be? Have you been playing a prank? Have you been possessing me while I sleep again? We did, you did this, this no, time? No, not this time. Not this time. Okay, it was funny the third time, too. It was okay, pretty funny like, the third time. But no, that's not it. And just... These are important spiritual questions, Storm. You sometimes feel like you're not yourself. And so, yeah, sure, sometimes you feel like things went wrong somewhere, right? And like, in a way, that's it's hard to pin down. Yeah? I mean, of course. Whenever I have a conversation with like a Neverwhere version of myself who's done better than me, I, I'm I'm happy when they get hit by a bus because it's it feels like they oh lucky bastard he was the one who who got the scholarship or, or like got the girl and or what or like, yeah and sometimes it's like sometimes it's like there's there there's something out there that's just been. And, you know, sometimes it's true, sometimes it's true. We've, we've made our enemies over the years, but, like, in the broad span, mm -hmm. sometimes it feels like there's something or someone out there that's been, you know, making things worse for you, right? Are you talking about Alex Abel? In a sense, in a distant sense. And, I mean, I'll, do you ever feel like you live in a universe built for your misery and suffering by a cruel demiurge? I mean, I think we often have, everyone has those days. Yes, yes, I often feel like we live in a universe built by a cruel demiurge, but I've built some universes and I'm not always cruel, so maybe it's a nice demiurge. I don't know. Well, when was the last time you checked on those? They could look after themselves. We'll see. What do you, where are you going with this? Welcome to Nagamati, Thompson. Oh, the Nag okay, we're in the Nagamati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. We're, in, we're in Nagamati. Now, um... Best thing I got is a cave, as you can see. I mean, well, you can't see shit, because there's a dust storm going on outside. But this place is actually very historically important. There's, Not hey, just... check it out. There's like... There's, there's, a, there's a... Someone left a camcorder here. Oh, shit. And some dog tags. I wonder what happened here. Anyway. So, I guess... Thompson, uh, you understand the significance of the location, but our listeners might not. Nag Hammadi is where the Nag Hammadi manuscripts were found back in uh, 1945. And these are important because they're probably the best primary source we got on, like, actual, what might be called Gnostic doctrine. And that's a whole can of worms that we'll get into in a bit. But when thinking of places to discuss the topic... The best thing that came to mind was Nag Hammadi, Egypt, in the middle of a sandstorm, because nothing really drives the fact that we live in a uh, cruel, unjust, imperfect universe home quite like getting a mouth and nose full of sand. Really, really you know, gets you I, in the mood for Gnosis. I, I feel more spiritual already. I've been doing some reading recently. A lot of Elaine Pagel, a lot of uh, listening to just talk about fucking Nas Doctrine. I was actually reading a bit of translations of uh, Arrhenius 
just skimming. Like I'm not. I'm not actually a fucking scholar here. I know way more than that. M- mo- most knowledge doesn't come out of reading books. It comes from having prophetic dreams, as as I'm sure we all know. But you know, there, there's a there's some useful things that you can learn in a uh, dead trees once in a while, and. I, I've been interested in Austin for a while, and I feel like, hey, I know about all these other fucking occult traditions. Might as well find out about this one. And I, I've come out of it with a greater appreciation, but also, in a sense, um, a d- bit of disappointment. I thought it'd be uh, that there'd be a bit more to this than there is, but I think there's a good amount of groundwork that I got. Good. Uh, I think there's a good amount of like. I guess a bit more mundane, a bit less mundane than I expected. Now, Torm. Yes. What would you say is kind of your broad understanding of Gnosticism? Would you agree that mm. there's kind of like a pop understanding of Gnosticism that I'd say ties in very closely to the Wargaming Manual Unknown Armies, being when it came out of and sort of the occult mainstream of the time of its initial writing. I would definitely agree to some extent, and I think that has been, uh, for me at least, that is high, that sense is somewhat heightened by uh, more recent work by Greg Stolze in the Anunnami's milieu. I'm thinking of Bring Me the Head of Saint Germain, where he does mention, I believe in the text, the Demiurge several times, um, and which an idea that I did kind of, Push back against, at least in my own head and now in your ears, uh, because just I think the Anunnami's cosmology is so much of its own beast, in my opinion, and tying it into just pop Gnosticism, pop Gnosticism would have been a mistake. But having done some like cursory research, um, knowing that you are also doing research and wanting to keep up as best I can, um, I've come to the conclusion that that, that my initial feelings were a bit uncharitable. And to be honest, like we, there are lots of things you can take from Gnosticism that are quite profitable to put into an Anonymous game, especially considering how varied it is. The, the schools of thought um, that have been dubbed Gnosticism by later scholars. So it's worthwhile, schools, but plural, I... That's important. Yes, Good on yes. And I have some things to say, but my, my research has been sort of haphazard listening to books, like books on tape, uh, listening to... Uh, reading Wikipedia articles, reading some books, watching movies. I watched 13th Floor. I watched um, Zardoz. I watched I watched a bunch of movies that are relevant to this, to, just to get into the milieu. Because for me, yeah. I, I'm going to try to keep it, drag you back to the... Uh, uh, I wish there was a word for the Earth of Anonamis that didn't sound terrible if there was one, but it wouldn't work. So I'm going to drag you back to Earth. The one I've seen thrown around is The World of Our Desires. The world of our desires. If you get, if I feel that you're floating off into the pleroma uh, too much, I will like throw out uh, a line and pull you back to the world of our desires. But other than that, um, I'm yeah, I'm willing to let you fly pretty far into that into that pleroma, into the into the into the truth. Well, worst comes to worst, you just let me wander out into the sandstorm and get out of my system for a bit. It's that's true. That's true. I'll be. I like I I, I wasn't out there for that I'll long. I'm already I'm already like thirteen percent sand. Well, it looks like it's coming down. Well, no, no, no. It's it's getting worse. All right. Well, we're gonna be here for a while, regardless. I think. So are, the, are sandstorms normally supposed to have hail? Those just maybe rocks. 
Are those baseballs? Rock. This is something that I hope this is something we brought up. Like it might be some unnatural phenomenon. Um, although baseballs are weird, I blame you for this one. Like it would if it was me, it would be like I don't know cricket balls or I don't know. Australian football. Well, balls. remember, I don't know. it's never your fault. It's the fault of the imperfect <laughs> demiurge who created the fucked up world we live in. But oh, that's uh, before I get into the deep end of all this, uh, I kind of want to just sort of give a, yeah, like an overview for the listeners of kind of the pop understanding of Gnosticism, which I do want to state beforehand is kind of wrong in a lot of ways. But, you know, especially in the 90s when there's kind of this revival of interest in Gnosticism, thanks to scholars like Elaine Pagel. And to a certain degree, shit like Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And through, you know, the movies they brought up, shit like 13th Floor or Zardoz, kind of. And the big one being The Matrix, right? As, as has been said before on this show, and should be one of the unofficial taglines of this show, it was the late 90s. It was a different time. Before 9-11. Okay, I'd say like the general kind of popular understanding of Gnosticism and the occult mainstream would be that Gnosticism is basically Christian mysticism. And the gist of it is that the world we see is false. It was made by a cruel demiurge to fuck us over, and that's why the material world and suffering exist. God is real, but he's like this singular being outside of the universe in a sense, called the Monad, with a bunch of like lesser deities kind of coming from and called Aeons. And that exists, like, in a higher divine realm separated from us, called the Pleroma. And then, in, you know, kind of a parallel to the Pandora myth, one day the lowest emanation, Sophia, fucked up and made the Demiurge, who was like, oh, I'm totally God. I'm gonna make a world, and that world's gonna be fucked up on purpose otherwise, because I'm not perfect. But... Through knowledge and study and contemplation, we can ascend to that higher plane of existence, that pleroma. Also, it's generally cooler with women. Like, generally, Gnosticism is cooler with women. Oh, also, Archons. There's these big, fucked-up, like, universe police. There are certain of the Demiurge that are kind of there to keep us down. Mm. I'd say that's kind of the broad strokes and important parts, right? I mean, I think that is a very comprehensive uh, view of the pop uh, version of Gnosticism. I'd even think that I would even call that an elevated view of the pop version of Gnosticism because most pop versions of Gnosticism are even more simple than that. They'll just take parts of that, um, especially the Archons, as was seen in like the Agents in The Matrix being the most common yeah. example. But yeah. there are many examples of the Archons as a concept, uh, even if they're not called that. Um, people kind of get what the Archons are. They're not, they don't have as much uh, cultural cachet as your demons or your angels or your djinn, um, speaking of, like, to be topical to where we are. But they are still recognizable to many people, even if they don't know they're called Archons or where they come yeah, from. Yeah, and it's kind of a revisionist take on all those concepts that, in a sense, sort of mashes them all together. I mean, it's just the latest revisionist take of these concepts. Like, I wouldn't call it the latest, but it is one. It is it definitely hell. Not even revisionist, but you know, it takes little bits from the you know general demons you'll see in folklore, little bits of what is thought of as angels, and kind of puts them all together. I think a lot of people did get a sort of um, 
subconscious understanding of certain elements of Gnosticism, not through the Matrix, but through the influence of um, authors like Philip K. Dick, who had a strong uh, Gnostic edge. And even though people didn't know it was Gnosticism, a lot of the ideas, um, in, in Valis, it's most obvious, um, and a lot of the stories about the pink laser and the empire never ended and all that, that's very Gnostic. But even in his other, other works, uh, you could see Gnostic themes running through to Android Dream of Electric Sheep. You can yeah, see some yeah. Gnostic elements. Even some of his stuff that doesn't seem obviously Gnostic, like um, Man the High Castle and stuff, kind of does. Kind of does. If you could look, it's not, it's not difficult to look at his work and find Gnostic elements. And the examples yeah. I'm choosing are well yeah. known, but not the probably not the best examples. I'm not familiar enough with the Philip K. Dick's work in like the net to really comment. Like I can definitely see the Gnostic ideas there in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And like I yeah, again a bit in Man of the High Castle. Those are also the only two books of his I've even read. So I can't really make that judgment too much myself, but it's all like Gnosticism dovetails very well with that sort of paranoid conspiratorial worldview. Oh yes, absolutely. It's the it's the original paranoid conspiratorial worldview, the Uber, um, not the Uber, the Ur uh, paranoid conspiratorial, conspiratorial worldview. Well, except perhaps I Buddhism. would say so because as we'll get into this a bit, Gnosticism owes a lot to previous traditions. Including oh, I agree. a I lot agree. of those aspects. Yeah, okay, you're right. You're right. But a lot of those earlier traditions are also sort of grouped up if it's like um, earlier Jewish traditions or like Iranian traditions and such, or even Egyptian traditions. But um, Buddhism is also another example of a conspiratorial cosmology because like everyone's deluded in Buddhism as well. Though there's some serious differences between the Gnosticism and Buddhism, there's also some very clear parallels. So and this is what I get annoyed sometimes when people talk about um, there is a theory that's going around, I've seen on Twitter a lot, which um, claims that um, anti-Semitism is the original, uh, like original evil of conspiracy th uh, theory in conspiratorial thinking. And I think that's, I think um, anti-Semitism has definitely been a huge impact or has a huge it depends yeah However, it depends on it depends on how you define anti-semitism i guess conspiratorial thinking always has a strong in-group out-group element but what we think true. of is like organized anti-semitism is you know starting with protocols of the elders of zion oh that's okay. fairly recent yes and I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't significant especially in the west in the our western view of like conspiracy theories but it's not like conspiracy conspiratorial thinking is limited to the west at all yeah um and absolutely it takes back all the way back and i think gnosticism is a better gnosticism buddhism these sort of like religions of the time period and even the sort of thought that was going around from the like third century bc onwards is yeah that's that's where all this thing come from we're like we just when we finished figuring out what the fuck's going on we started deconstructing it so postmodern magic that's not new we've been deconstructing this shit since we started so Anyway, anyway. Oh, no, I'm, it's I'm just commentaries and commentaries on commentaries, <laughs> and you're wrong. No, you're wrong. You haven't considered this obscure Epicurean or what the fuck ever, right? It's, of course, of course. Like, I wouldn't equate postmodernism with deconstruction, but sure, sure. We, we've always been bickering about this shit. It's kind of what it, and I agree. I would create 
parallels between modern postmodern like what the postmodernism we have now and the thought the kind of thoughts that were emerging in like the centuries before the uh, supposed birth of Christ um, in the way that in like the rise of Confucius and the Buddha in India and all the Greek philosophers and how they reacted to earlier thoughts and I think there are definite parallels that you can make and they're probably significant in, in, in symbology and occultism and all these sorts of things. But that's another topic for another day because that's very half-baked and just dribbling out of my mouth. Yeah, we have enough ground stand. to cover here. <laughs> yeah. we, can, we can do a overview of postmodernism episode one of these days. One day. There's a lot. It's like... A long, well, a long then with, as long as Carl Jung and fucking oh, Hermeticism God. and the Kabbalah and Buddhism, as I brought up, and, and a lot yep. of things. Well, I mean, the nice thing about our postmodernism episode is what we'll do for that one is just leave the tape on for two hours while we talk in a different room. Two hours? I thought we were just doing, like, we're just going to release it like a 24-hour podcast where we just live our lives, like, continue to have this conversation. We, we can discuss it later. Man, I don't get art. And Fuck art. Fuck art. <laughs> that reminds me of, of, of an adept I know. He liked to fuck art. But anyway. <laughs> I mean, like, you're bringing this up that, you know, they've been bickering about all this shit for years, and that's kind of the thing with Gnosticism, is there's this idea that Gnosticism is this singular religious tradition. And it's not really. It's not. No. There's, like, this singularity and continuity attributed to it that's not really there. There's certainly influence. There's influence throughout history of it. But you see a lot of these ideas arise semi-independently. Like I'd say like sort of the core thing of Gnosticism as a meaningful category nowadays is like, all right, you got the quote-unquote real world is false, you got the Demiurge, and you got Archons or something, right? But Gnosticism yeah. as a term, that doesn't get used till the 17th century. Oh, yeah. By Cambridge philosopher Henry Moore. So it is, in terms of the nomenclature, the nomenclature is very new. So the classification was kind of there a bit. The, the closest thing we have to that is the fathers of the early church were denouncing Gnosticos. Gnosticos churches as heretics as early as the second century. So it only took, you know, about a century after Christ died for all of us to start getting each other's throats about which of the shit's right and wrong. I could just imagine this, and the thing is, Gnosticos is like, it's all about being smart, knowing lots of things, and like, make, and it's sort of like an anti-intellectual argument against... Well, them, no, like, that, that's what Gnosticos were. literally means. It means intellectual. I know. I just, I just imagine this early anti-Gnostic, like, preacher just talking to a crowd and saying, like, something like, I think the people of Judea are tired of experts. <laughs> well, I mean, like, okay, like, if you read Arrhenius... Like, his, his book Against Heresies is, like, is probably, like, the main source we had on Gnosticism for, for almost two millennia. Or at least for, I'd say, like, there's a millennia of gap when we just did not have access to those primary sources. All we had was a secondary source, which was specifically denouncing Gnosticos churches. And literally what that means is intellectual churches. Yeah. When Arrhenius is denouncing this, he's not denouncing a particular tradition... He's using the term in the book very broadly. Some of the heretical groups he describes in there are what we'd describe as Gnostic now. 
Other ones aren't, but he still describes them as Nosticos. And really what he's saying is, look at these nerds. Look at That's these right. fucking nerds bringing all their philosophy and shit into the Bible. The Bible, like he was arguing on a to interpret the Bible in a much more literalist fashion. It's true. It's true. And when the fathers of the early church were denouncing Gnosticos heresies in the first council of Nicaea and before that, it's not them like denouncing transcendental Christianity. It's them denouncing intellectual Christianity that was popular in a lot of the sects that went against what the great church, what amounted to the organized church at the time, what those leaders were teaching, you know, bishops and whatnot. Oh, I'm just, you're just blowing my mind because now I'm just thinking like, holy shit, was, was Trump a Gnostic? Is that, is that is what it was all about? I think yes, actually. Oh God. Okay, no, we have to go back. You can't tell me that QAnon is not Gnostic as fuck. It is Gnostic as fuck. Holy shit. What a, oh, that's such a good theme. That's such a good theme. All right. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll put a pin in that. And like what the, you know, quote unquote Gnosticos, and I'll, I'll switch to Gnostic for now. Cause like it, what we think of as Gnostic now, that whole tradition of there being a separate Demiurge figure and the quote unquote real world being false. There was a, a few very prominent religious groups in the Middle East at the time that were preaching that sort of thing. And they were a, kind of a part of, I guess, broadly three, I'd say, key doctrinal groups that were practicing Christianity in the area at the time. One is one of them is what we'd call the Gnostics now. Yep. One would be the Neoplatonists. Neoplatonism uh, is a bit of a Neoplatonism. It predates the Gnostic tradition, and it was a and Gnosticism in, in some ways is a. Reaction it predates Christianity by a little bit, actually. Like Neoplatonism, yeah, really, is considered that, to have started in like first century BC. That's it. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I think that in many ways, Gnosticism. It, it, some people consider it like a reaction to like you know uh, traditional like Jewish Abrahamic faith sort of thing. But it was yeah. just as much a reaction to inspired by and a reaction to the sort of Neoplatonic ideas, which were quite prevalent um, at the time. In the air. Yes, exactly. And, like, there's a lot of overlap with, like, sort of Neoplatonist Christianity and Gnostic Christianity. But the Neoplatonists also hated the Gnostics. Well, okay. I'd say I misspoke a bit there, actually. What we kind of think of as Neoplatonism now is considered to have started with the 4th century AD. What a lot of the Gnostics were dealing with was what's kind of considered, called by scholars now, Middle Platonism. Which are okay, so. pretty different. Um... But the, I, the, I'd say the key thing that the Gnostics and the Gnostic Christians and the Neoplatonist Christians had in common was they were both emanationists. They both believed, like, okay, there's one ultimate god at the tippy top, and then kind of parts of him below emanating from him mm -hmm. that kind of each do their own thing. Now, Neoplatonists didn't believe in, like, a separate reality their whole thing is that they believe there is the ultimate God and that Christ was below him. If, if they even paid much attention, if there was the ones that, paid, that uh, were, had to include Christ in their cosmology. Yeah, yeah. Like, we're talking about the Neoplatonist Christians that... Well, sure. we're pretty close to mainstream Christianity. The more, further you drift, the more it's considered kind of Gnosticism. And then, you know, there were Neoplatonists that weren't Christian at all. Like, Neoplatonism yep. is, like... 
Plato is an emphasis there, but they're synthesizing just a bunch of different classical Greek philosophy, Aristotle, yeah. Socrates, the Stoics. I think, if I remember correctly, the key thing they kind of reject outright is Epicureanism. But I okay. may be yeah. remembering that incorrectly. I do know that some schools of Neoplatonism, the earlier schools, uh, under, under the, the monad, they would put instead some of the traditional gods of the Greek pantheon. Yeah, yeah, and, and the thing, with, like the key is, thing that Neo, which makes, it makes it quite similar to modern, certain modern sects of Hinduism that do the same thing when they have like a, a single like oh, I can't remember the right word for it, but like a single yeah. a, a single god with uh, manifestations of uh, across the Hindu pantheon because Hinduism yeah. is super yeah. complicated too. But it's yeah, and they, it kind of has that emanation. Like I, you understand yeah. Hinduism way better than I do, but it does kind of have that emanationism to it too, like with how Vishnu works and all that stuff. Yes. But like I'd say the key thing with Neoplatonism, Neoplatonist Christianity, that kind of distinguishes them from Gnostic Christianity is that the Neoplatonists didn't believe that um, the creator was evil or indifferent. He believed they were fundamentally good. He might have been like a lower emanation of the unified God, but he was still like fundamentally benevolent. Because he was almost perfect. Yes, Almost. exactly, exactly, and that's, we'll get out of it, and the, one of the key things of Gnosticism is that justifies why the Demiurge be like that is because he's so far removed from the original monad. Yep, <clears throat> he's the red-headed stepchild of existence. But you end up with the Neoplatonists bickering a bunch with the uh, great church at the First Council of Nicaea. You know, both of them have already figured out, like, okay, we... We're denouncing Gnostic heresies. All those intellectuals are bullshitting up their own ass and reading too much philosophy. We don't necessarily need to be anchored in the Hellenic tradition of philosophy when constructing our cosmology. But then the Neoplatonists are like, uh, hey guys, no, like there's still there's still wisdom to be found there. The big kind of sect of Neoplatonist Christianity that was present there were the Arianists. Who are emanationists that believed in God above Christ. And what you have <laughs> happen at the Council of Nicaea is like, wait, no, uh, shit. Uh, let me think about this. Trinity! Trinity! They're all, they're all the same. God and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all the same, but also different, but all equal to each other. There's none of this hierarchy shit there. At least not in that case. As, as you were describing the plight of the Neoplatonists at the Council of Nicaea, I was, I, I, I was reminded of the, of the, um, the suffering of the well-deserved suffering of the Strasserites, and, and you, then you brought up Arianists, and I'm like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> to clarify, to clarify, and yes, I know that too. It's spelled A-R-I-A-N. I'm aware. Thank I God, thank God, and those sort of polemical, anti-Gnostic. Anti-Neoplatonist sources are the best stuff we have on Gnosticism. Well, at least until the Berlin Codex is found in 1896, and that's when we where we get stuff like the Gospel of Judas, and a couple of texts that are later found more complete in the Akhamadi Library. But you know, it's only a few codices. And fun fact with Ber the Berlin Codex that was also found in Egypt. We just we just keep finding all these uh early Christian codices around here. We want to go explore this cave further, see if we get lucky. 
Is the Berlin Codex related to the Q source, the Q document? Because I've noticed that one in my research. Oh, it's, it, I actually document. don't know. It might be. I think, no, the Q thing, I think, is that's more like a biblical scholarship thing and that there's certain parts of the New Testament that aren't really thoroughly attributed. And it's just like, judging by the time period of biblical scholarship, it would make a lot of sense if there had a singular source. So, so you're claiming that there was a highly a highly placed source that cannot be verified. Yep. No, that's the thing. Like, all these fucking... All these fucking academic issues. Like, you know, non, non-falsifiability and all that shit. We've been, we've been dealing with that shit for millennia. Of course we have, yeah. But yeah, our main source... And we've been, we found a few new codices since... Uh, 1945, but the big one that blew all this shit up was the Nag Hammadi Library. Because there was a bunch of texts that were cited in Against Heresies and other anti-Gnostic, uh, anti-Neoplatonist uh, polemicals happening from church leaders at the time that are quoted, and we're just like, oh shit, the, this, these primary sources match exactly, right? And sometimes they differ. Sometimes they differ in ways that seem to be being done like, to help the writer of the polemics prove their point. And, I mean, the Nag Hammadi Library, this is, I mean, to put it simply, this is a big fucking jar. This jar yes, that they right. find is, like, two to three feet tall. And, and we lost at least one book to, to the fire. No, we lost a lot more than that, but I'm going to go into that. So, all right. Okay, Because the history... Too much, at, at various points in this, I feel... That I because you've been getting into like the real. I know you've been going mad, and I can't. I can't judge. Okay, okay. Soon as you start ranting and raving about something that isn't McDonald's, now you need to justify yourself. I I've I've ranted about non-McDonald's <laughs> things. Excuse me. Excuse me. And it's very on this very podcast. Yes. Um, Yes, you have. Many well, yeah. Not uh, such as Coatesville and, well, Columbus, Ohio, but they haven't listened to that one yet. Uh, yeah, no, you have given me many informative and very well-realized rants that do end up getting drawn in none on armies, but yeah, I get your point. And, and I get Star your point. Trek, my, Star Trek, my man, and, and all sorts of things. Anyway. <laughs> I'm just busting is... your balls, my But yeah, no, you're totally right. I need to, I need to tie this into, I need to tie this into UA. So, I need to tie this into UA. Well, actually, no, I, I, I didn't want to go that far yet. I wanted right. to tie this into some more of the, because uh, you're giving us a lot of, uh, I guess this is crunch, like the history, the history of like, uh, what happened with Gnosticism and where we got it from. But I would like to know some details, even though these questions will be hard to answer. Because they, there are lots of different answers, so I'd like to give like your answer. First question, simple question, Frank. What's a demiurge? Demiurge is sort of, it's the figure that is separate from the ultimate god that, and that this figure created the world. It created the material world specifically, which is why things suck. Which is why we have things like pain and misery and lust. Why would someone do? It varies, depending on the sect. Sometimes the Demiurge fucks up. Sometimes the Demiurge is acting spitefully. Usually it involves them trying to imitate the Almighty God in the act of creation in some way. And it happens imperfectly. I'll be getting into sort of the 
I guess, more of the origin story there in a bit, because it varies from sect to sect. But, yeah, the key thing is, like, all right, in the Gnostic tradition, and I'd say this is the key thing that distinguishes... Okay, no, fuck, okay. There's no Gnostic... Well, no, fuck it, yeah, there's a, there's a Gnostic tradition. It's disparate, but, you know, they... All these guys are often influenced by each other in certain ways. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's not... It doesn't have continuity the same way that, you know, like... St. Peter has all the way through the modern Catholic Church, right? There's not that institutional it, it, continuities. There was no Gnostic St. Peter, which would have, I don't know, a good or bad thing. It's, so it's very complicated. It's all over the place. But that's similar to many religions, many uh, political ideologies, many belief systems that don't have their, like, centralized St. Peter-based uh, or St. Peter analog like mainstream yeah uh, yeah the main idea is that the entity who created the material world that we all live and suffer in fucked up and is separate from like the grand almighty and the demiurge it's a latinization of the greek word demiurgos which literally translates to craftsman that's, that's all it means it's just craftsman as distinguished from like the almighty and if this, if this monad is this perfect, like, god, the real god behind everything, why would he allow this to happen? Why would a demiurge come along and create a, a fucked up material universe made of meat and dust and bones? Well, it's kind of like how even if you have, like, because of the whole emanations thing, right? It's kind of like how, like, all oh, right, you, you might have, like, a CEO of a business or something that has a pretty solid job of steering the ship. And what wants to be done with the business... But at the lower level, you have the petty managers that have no idea what the fuck they're doing and are, because of this cosmic divine telephone game, and those lesser entities that are also part of the monad, the almighty god, are called aeons, typically. And aeons are typically shown as having some capacity for free will. Like, this is important. So you're, you're telling me that the great leader is unquestionably right and just, but it's the people below the great leader that are fucking up. And that's why the revolution hasn't been achieved, I see. In a sense, but also, you know, the people below the great leader are also part of the great leader. It might be more like, uh, most of your body functions right, but say you have, like, a twitch, right? You know, our bodies are multiplicities. There's a whole lot of kind of different semi-dependent, semi-independent entities operating inside us. Some which work perfectly fine, others which might kind of fuck up. Okay, yeah, that makes complete sense. And now, and now that joke has sent me down another rabbit hole in my own head as the part of me that spent two years studying, like, Juche has realized, oh, God, I can see the parallels here as well. Oh, no. Like, the, the emanationism is kind of, like, the... One of the core things of Gnosticism, how they square the circle between Christianity and earlier philosophical traditions. Sure. You sounded like you had another question, because you said first question. Oh, yeah, I, I was going to follow up with, um, all right, so, yes, who's the Demiurge? And, he, yes, he was an emanation. Kind of. He's not Aeon. Like, that, he's usually not Aeon. That's, um, that's an important thing to clarify there. Yeah. He's usually, in most oh, traditions, yeah. not considered his own Aeon. Okay, okay. But I have heard a name bandied about and often with these sort of abrahamic faiths or abrahamic traditions or even like ancient greek traditions and things 
you don't you don't see that many ladies' names mentioned, but a lady's name does get mentioned quite a bit in some of the stuff I've been looking into about Gnosticism. And who is that lady? Who's uh, that talking about Sophia? Because there's a yeah. lot of ladies in most Gnostic traditions, but Sophia is, uh, yeah, that's a big one. Sophia is wisdom. Because here's what, one of the things that dovetails with the ostensible topic of our podcast here. One of the words often used for aeons is archetype. One of the most important ones is Sophia, which is wisdom. It's specifically sort of the feminine intuitive wisdom, right? I can get more into what her deal is, but you, in most Gnostic traditions, Sophia is a feminine aspect of the monad, which is very far removed from the, like the original monad, usually like right at the bottom somewhere. And in some sort of, some mistake that she makes typically leads to the Demiurge's creation. And what, 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 what was some of the mistake? It depends. It depends on the tradition. And as I'm going to different traditions, I'll kind of go, like, that's one of the sort of the, I'd say, key things that differentiates different Nostra traditions is how they view Sophia. But the key thing is that she fucked up. She fucked up in some level. This does seem rather on brand with the uh, thought of the time and even today of love. It, it was it was a woman who fucked up because she didn't listen to the great big strong hard gonad. I mean, well, in the there's there's the Valentinian tradition, which has very interesting has a very interesting take on Sophia that I'll want to go into, but we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, nope. And I, I do want to emphasize that Sophia is pretty much always one feminine aspect of the monad among several. Right. Yes. Is the feminine, a particular feminine aspect that fucks up, and it's often described in a way that parallels very heavily with um, Pandora. So it, it wasn't that like Sophia was the only part. The the monad had binders full of women up there in the Pharaoh. Exactly. All and it was in of them himself, herself, themselves, part woman. And you know this also is where certain Gnostic sects differ with each other. Because, again, so, so I do want to, yeah, usually one of the key things that is part of the Gnostic, most Gnostic traditions, especially ones that are closely tied to Christianity, is that there was this emanation, Sophia. She fucked up, created the Demiurge, and the Demiurge is what created the material world and why we have suffering. It's very, it, it's the Pandora's box story with extra steps. Um, I guess there's a few other extra questions, but they will probably come up. I would like to hear more about archons. I'd like to hear more about aeons. I would. What, one more thing. What is? What's Jesus got to do with all this? Oh, ooh, that that's fucking complicated and varies a lot from tradition to tradition. We'll get into it. But first, I want to get back to this place oh, that we're sorry. standing in a cave in. I just want to get the readers on it. No, of, I a get general, you. General idea. Yeah. I get you, I get you, and uh, I do actually have a list here. One of the first things I want to cover after I go into the Nag Hammadi library story, because it's a fucking story, is kind of what all these terms really mean, and where they come from. Alright. So, the Nag Hammadi library, story goes, and that's kind of one of the things I do want to emphasize here, is that some of the 
Uh, some of the sources involved aren't the most reliable. Most of these are just coming from interviews with people that may not be entirely reliable. A lot of where this information came from initially was literally a guy going to an ancient Egyptian village with money and bottles of whiskey and handing them out until he got the information he was interested in. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. Yep. Story goes, in 1945, three peasant brothers in the Nagamati region of Upper Egypt dug up a big old clay earthenware jar when digging for fertilizer for their crops. Now, Muhammad Ali al-Saman, the oldest of the brothers, and therefore the one considered responsible for it, was hesitant to smash the clay jar he found. And keep in mind, this is a big fucking clay jar. Again, like, it, it varies source to source and telling to telling, but generally considered to be about two to three feet high. Like, this is a good-sized jar. Full of books. Well, full of papyrus. And he was hesitant to smash this jar because he was worried there was a gin in there. And that's a very valid concern. Not yes. just here in Nagamati, anywhere. Nine times out of ten, if you find a clay earthenware jar buried somewhere, especially that size, there's probably a gin in there. If it's a if it's a pickle jar, there's probably a gin in there. I mean, it, just don't don't just if you dig up it's about a size. jar, <laughs> especially big buried it. jars. <laughs> yes. But he decided to go for it anyway because he was hoping there might be gold. That, that old gin versus gold, the uh, the risk you take. It's like um, the Monty Hole problem. There's gold behind two doors and a gin behind the other. Now, he ended up being disappointed because he found just a bunch of old papyrus instead. And so these three guys and some of their buddies end up bringing this big old jar... Well, the contents of the jar, as well as the lid, back to their mother's house. Where she used most of the documents as kindling for a fire. I, mean, I guess it was winter. I hope it was well. Almost two millennia old papyrus documents that have been one of the most explosive and revolutionary sources in religious scholarship, especially Abrahamic scholarship, and the past millennia were burned as kindling. And I'm going to do something now that's quite uncharacteristic of myself and defend the Catholic Church because people could criticize the Catholic Church monks of the Middle Ages for just scraping off all these like ancient important texts to write religious stuff on them. But at least we could find, we, at least eventually we developed the technology to find out what was written on there originally. Now, if you just use it as kindling, that's 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 it. That's, that's if only right. they let people actually fucking go down there into the Vatican archives very much. But so it goes. And to be fair, most of those archives are just like birth and like crop records and shit. I, I I'm banned, but that's that's just for pissing in the corner. Now what happens after this is when the story gets kind of wild because after they drop off the jar, the brothers then leave for a couple of weeks to avenge the death of their father. By murdering the man that they believed did it, where they, and I quote, hacked off his limbs, ripped out his heart, and devoured it among them as the ultimate act of blood revenge. That, uh, that, uh, this is just the context. This is just the backstory of the finding. This is just the facts of the story. You know, yeah, are these unreliable? Eh, maybe a bit. But 
like all great historians, I'm going to go with whichever story is the most interesting. And operate as if that's true. I mean, that's that's how we play this game. That's how we do this. It, when, when you're coming up with shit for your unknown armies or other occult urban fantasy game, just go with the most interesting take on history. Or do what often happens where we look at it in a contrarian way and be like, alright, how can we take this, at surface level, more boring take and make it equally interesting? Now... The reason that all this stuff gets revealed, all these documents end up getting found, is because the brothers worried that the police were going to find these documents when they were searching the house and might consider them heretics or something. They handed them off to a local Coptic priest for safekeeping. Which was a smart thing to do. They got angry at their mom for, like, burning all the things, and they took what was left. Like, we gotta take this to the priest. Well, interesting too is like these guys are Muslim. These guys are Muslim, but they real they recognize this as like, oh, these must be Christian texts. Let's give this to the guy who's probably more interested in this stuff. Well, there's 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 Muslim and there's Muslim. There's 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 normal yes. Muslim person like most people, and then there's angry heart eating Muslim because avenging their father. I suggest that some of the things they do are not are not like based on the work of, of the Quran. The Quran. Yes, they they have other things going on. You you don't remember the bit. You don't remember the bit of the Quran where Muhammad eats the heart of his enemies, like fucking Temple of Doom. They would put that. Yep. I mean, you might have read different translations. Oh well. That's true. I I don't know Arabic. That's the thing. I I I'm far removed from the the truth and the holiness of the Quran. So weirdly enough, I haven't read a version of the Quran that has that, but I have read a version of the. Mormon that has it, so maybe it turns up a lot. It's a very <laughs> easy and delicious way to get the strength of your enemies. Right. Joseph Smith was a hungry boy. From the priest, he ends up handing off one of the manuscripts to a history teacher he's friends with, who realizes, like, hey, this is probably worth a lot, and he sends it off to Cairo for valuing. And then from Cairo, it falls into the black market. He never even gets a value for it. It kind of floats around until Professor Gilles Kispel of Utrecht University in the Netherlands finds out about it, convinces the Young Foundation to buy it, notices the manuscript is incomplete and missing some pages, and goes to track down the rest. And from that, it's history. And he kind of retraces the steps that the manuscript went through and is able to go back to the, I believe, original Coptic priest... To find the documents that hadn't been sold. I read a bit about this story of like how the documents got um, to like uh, the hands of scholars and how young. And I, I sort of feel that like there was just a string of like um, just slowly increasing in volume. Holy shit. From various people oh, yeah. along the trail. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But like, it's like wow this, is, this document's incredible. Wait there's more of this? Wait there's that much more of this? Wait you burned half of it? Emotional roller coaster. God, the death rattle, the croak of despair that those scholars must have let out when they found out about what happened to a lot of the missing documents. That's the other thing, too. Like, a lot of these documents are not in good shape. They're, like, falling apart. They're filled with holes. And that means we haven't been full, able to fully translate some of them. Luckily, we've been able to... In some cases, we've had previous examples of the same documents that we found in other 
like collections like uh, the Berlin Codex. Other cases we found more since. Like I believe there's some overlap with the Dead Sea Scrolls. This actually reminds me in an odd way. And this thought has just come out of nowhere of a story I was reading about a whole bunch of um, lost episodes from the 60s, lost episodes of Doctor Who um, that the BBC had just taped over. Um, like original episodes, they were broadcast, but there were just there was no original copy. They found a whole bunch that was sitting in storage in Ethiopia, of all places. <laughs> fucking know, excellent. <laughs> they must have Good on you, Ethiopian Doctor Who fans. <laughs> I think it was like it had been sent there like to be broadcast back in the 60s. And, like after various revolutions and the Turk, like then someone was like, hey, what's this stuff? I hope they broadcasted it and they found it in some Ethiopian superfan's apartment. He's all decked out in the fucking trench coat and Tom Baker scarves, waving his sonic screwdriver in their faces when he when they show up and knock at his door. Now you just want me to run like a Doctor Who themed UA game set in Ethiopia. Which <laughs> I just want you to run a UA game <laughs> set in Ethiopia. Whether or not it's Doctor Who themed is up to you. I, th I think a Doctor Who NPC or GMC would be very appropriate. But I was thinking... Oh, absolutely. They would have got some complete reels, but there must have been one really good episode where they get to the last one it's been it's been taped over with some propaganda speech from 1960s, like the Abyssinian Empire, which I think, or whatever. Um, and they're like, no! So close! It turns out that was actually in the original showing. Yeah, it made sense. It made sense. There we go. It made sense at the time. For this... This episode of Doctor Who has been sponsored by the government of the Empire of Absidia. So, the, so the, to go into the con, like the contents of these documents, they're kind of fucking incredible. A lot of them are just like claiming to be kind of secret gospels of Christ's disciples. Like the Apocryphon of John. Apocryphon literally means secret book. There's Apocryphon of James. Just, just looking up the names of these codexes, look, there's some dope names. Some oh, cool I'll names. get into some of those fucking names, because they're dope. <laughs> and what they actually mean is... We'll, we'll get into it. The Apocryphon of James, Prayer of the Apostle Paul, Gospel of Thomas, name a couple. There's a lot of books describing creation myths that vary from what's in Genesis and kind of often like describe uh, various takes on, alternate takes on Genesis. That, you know, establish a more Gnostic cosmology. Uh, some of which, like, On the Origin of the World, The Gospel of Truth, and one of the dopest fucking names, The Hypostasis of the Archons. That's really good. That's it's really so good. fucking good. It's so fucking good. One of these, The Testimony of Truth, describes the Eden story from the viewpoint of the serpent. That's just, that's literally just Wicked. The musical Wicked. Uh, but like a thousand, two thousand years ahead of its time. That's amazing. Where the serpent is granting Gnostic wisdom to Adam and Eve while, quote-unquote, the Lord jealously guards it and threatens them with death. I mean, they just, they just released Cruella. They could release Serpent, Disney's The Serpent, and it would be great. Yeah, give it like 30 years. They need to come out with like a Disney's The Gospels first before they do... The revisionist villain take. That's true, that's true. Disney's The Gospels would be... I want, I want that, like, fucking exo-stock tape. That would be good. From the... Made, it, made in the... In the in, uh, 
in the golden age of animation, no less. And it's got Mickey Mouse. It's 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 their universe's version of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. It's just Mickey Mouse going through the Gnostic cosmology. I would I would pay an arm to watch that. I, I no, I've seen that one actually. Interesting fact that story that take is actually um even more violent on the crucifixion story than the Passion of Christ. The Mel Gibson one. Mickey goes through some shit in that in that cartoon. Donald is Pontius Pilate. It's it's a for whole thing. For some reason, for some reason, the one I see on the cross most appropriately is Goofy, and I don't know why. I think in the one I saw, I think he was I think he was Paul. Judas, Judas was Pete. I remember that specifically. Weirdly enough, Mary was Minnie, which was weird in a lot of ways. But yeah, like that's kind of like the key. It's like you know, do you know who Mickey Mouse's mom is? I fucking don't. That's a question and a half. Uh, I bet his mom's name was Minnie. I bet his mom's name was Minnie. Not yeah, he's Minnie. one of those guys. Yeah, <laughs> he's one yep. of those guys. Yeah, and that fits with fucking Jesus as well. Yeah. Beyond the cartoon mouse brutality, it is a very, like, uh, orthodox take on the crucifixion story. It, this isn't any, like, Last Temptation of Christ sort of shit. It's, it's pretty straightforward. It's just surprisingly horrific. Watching Mickey Mouse get scoured by dogs dressed in Roman legionnaire armor is, uh, was pretty traumatic, I'm not gonna lie. Forgive them, Lord. They have. They don't know what they do. Ha ha. <laughs> All right. So, to get back to the fucking Nagamati manuscripts, um, yeah, a lot of this is also just like very elaborate emanationist cosmologies. Zorstrianos, Marsarnes, and also the Apocryphon of John. The Apocryphon of John's a big one, and we'll get into that later. They have a copy of Plato's The Republic in there? This is someone's library. This is someone's book well, collection. So that's <laughs> he kind may of not thing, even actually. have been a Gnostic. He's well, no, like, that's, that's what historians kind of tend to think now. Like, for a long time, historians w- assume this to be some, like, Gnostic sect that had buried all these texts while fleeing some sort of pure persecution. But also, these texts disagree with each other all the fucking time. And now sort of the consensus among academics is just that this was some middle class dude that was really into collecting French Christian texts. Around 3rd, 4th century. That, that came, it was just a storage locker. It was storage locker. Yeah, but literally, <laughs> yes. Like, if we didn't have fucking storage units back then, back then you want to keep something safe, you bury it. <laughs> yeah. Without going into, like, a bunch of Gnostic doctrine shit, there are some very interesting texts in here on their own terms. Sentences of Sextus is a fun one. Because it's, it's not even Christian. Sextus was a Pythagorean. And our earliest known mention of him is done by Oregon, an early Christian ascetic from around the time period, you know, 3rd, 4th century AD, who was denouncing it. And the reason he denounced it was specifically what the practices that were caused by a lot of people following the advice in this passage, which translates as follows. Cast away any part of the body that would cause you not to live abstinently. For it is better to live abstinently without this part than ruinously with it. 
<laughs> Gee, I wonder why that didn't catch on. So apparently, self-castration was a really big and common practice among early Christian ascetics. Of course, of course. The point where Oregon had to be like, guys, no! You, no, you shouldn't do this. Stop. This isn't even, like, actual Christian doctrine. It's just, it's just, it's just the, the precursor to the NoFap movement, which, which has popped up in multiple eras and multiple cultures because guys just can't handle... I hope that's where that goes eventually. Just a bunch of fucking dudes on Reddit. Uh, Arshlat... <laughs> They're posting, they're like posting pictures of their seven dicks. R slash a macro scission. Oh no, stop it. You're gonna, you're, <laughs> you've, in, you've invoked yes. it now. You've invoked it. Now, another interesting text we got in here is one that we brought up before in the Star Trek episode, which is the Thunder Perfect Mind. Mm. Which is this poem Judging from the writing and the language, it seems to be contemporary with a lot of the other Christian, especially like Gnostic intellectual sects, poetry that you saw coming out of the area at the time, you know, like the ancient Greek and whatnot. And it's a poem where a deity identifying itself in feminine terms speaks of itself paradoxically as a means to define itself. I am shameless and I am ashamed... I am strong and I am afraid. It is I who am war and peace. Like, if nothing else, this is raw as fuck. I am the mystic hermaphrodite and I am the sexual reapers. There you go, exactly. Egg fucking... Well, again, all these aeons. All these aeons are also known as archetypes, right? This shit goes back a long fucking time. And it also shows that, like, you know, a lot of these Gnostic sects are you know, taking some of this transcendental shit to an extreme of like, okay, God has masculine and feminine aspects at the same time. And those are all important parts of creation. Mm. That ties in very interestingly with the Eve story when we get into the Sethian tradition in a very fucked up sense. But what I'd like to do now is kind of cover some of these terms a bit more and cover the source of them. And from that, it, I think it really kind of demystifies Gnosticism in a lot of ways. But I'm going to go into this anyway. Because what I was looking for was like, okay, you see, in certain cases, a lot of shared terminology between these sects. Even in, like, the Nala Kamadi manuscripts. Not always, not always. Like, the different sects usually have different, their own terms for, like, the monad. The monad is more of something that you see applied as terminology by Arrhenius and, you know, polemicists that are, I guess, kind of discussing these. I'd say, like, kind of in an anthropological sense, they're discussing these doctrines far removed from them, right? They aren't taking them at face value. And also, they're trying to make the sort of, the argument, like, all these heresies... All these groups are fundamentally the same and heretical in the same ways, right? All these fucking intellectual Christian groups reading too fucking much. Yeah. But I was wondering, okay, is there a single source here? Is there kind of like a place where they're getting all this shared terminology? And, well, okay, to go for monad, because that is a term that 
you see used sometimes in the text. Monad comes from the Greek monos, which means alone, and roughly translates to unit. That's, you know, the highest god that's a singular god. So, yes. So, yes. Literally, the fucking Gnostics were looking at this, looking at God being like, look at this absolute unit. Well, that, 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 there we go. There we go. The Pleroma, which is sort of kind of the collect term for the outside higher divine realm, is used throughout the original Greek Bible. Like, it's a, it's a, an actual biblical term. Um, that, far as I can tell, because of the way it's being used in the original Greek Polemicist texts, is kind of translated separately, you know? It's more deliberately transcribed as opposed to, like, when the fullness of God is used in the Bible, in other places, it's just, you know, the oneness, the fullness of God. It's God in its totality. All the aeons and everything, right? But, you know, it's still the totality of God... In a non-Gnostic tradition as well, right? Aeon, which comes from the original Greek meaning ages, lifespan, eternities, is used by Plato to refer to the world of forms. Mm. You know, his world outside the cave. Outside the cave, that's right. Casting, casting their shadows um, for us foolish, tied up people. Yes, exactly. And Demiurge is a Latinized form of the Greek Demiurgos, which, as we said before, literally translates to craftsman. And Plato uses the term repeatedly in his dialogue Timaeus to refer to the entity who created the material world. So what are we kind of getting from the, the kind of the unified terminology that is seen in a lot of these groups? They either come from the Bible... Or they come from Plato. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. They come from the Abrahamic tradition, or they come from the Greek tradition. Not even the Greek tradition. Usually Plato specifically, and that's kind of, Mm. you know, these are, quote-unquote, intellectual Christian sects, right? You know, the key things that you see given about the Matrix are like, oh, it's super Gnostic, and oh, it's Plato's cave, right? And it took me literal fucking years to be like, oh, wait... No, these are the cave and Gnosticism are literally the same fucking thing. All Gnosticism is, is just a bunch of intellectual, nerdy-ass Christians trying to square the circle between Christian doctrine and Plato. Yeah. That's all it is. And the name, and the name of the demiurge of the Matrix is gender. Very, with the fourth Matrix movie coming out? They're planning to put that a lot more in the forefront, and I am actually very interested in seeing what they do with that. Doing that makes the Matrix, the fourth Matrix movie, sound more interesting to me. Because that it I probably will without, be. With, without that, without that twist making it different, without that causing me to have curiosity about it, I would have had as much interest in the Matrix Four as I have in Avatar Two. Well, I mean, and in all fairness, the whole notion of transness and how often one comes to that realization is Gnostic as fuck and does actually dovetail very well with the sexual rebus and shit. 
Yes. The notion of gender as epiphany. That's Gnostic as hell. Uh, that this fundamental part of your being is something that you can only really come to recognize and realize after deep contemplation of yourself. That is true. That is true. I could go on a long, like, sidetrack rant about uh, the sexual rebus, but I'm going to save that for another day. I, otherwise, we'll get in, in the weeds. Um, so let's go back to Gnosticism. Although, in many ways, we always are in Gnosticism in some ways. I feel it all relates to Gnosticism in some ways, so many things. But what were you saying? What were you saying? So, and to kind of have the last bit of terminology here, Archon. Archon is just the Greek word for ruler. It was the term used to describe the chief magistrates of the Greek city-states. Yes, I did watch a video that went into the uh, history of the position of Archon in the Greek city-states and how it changed over time, how it was um, the power going from the kings to nobility and then that, that sort of power becoming diluted by more people and becoming corrupted. And it was quite interesting. And I thought it would be, if I was to like think more of like what to do with Archons as like, a, as if I was doing some weird deconstructionist take on Archons or Angels, I would steal from that. But it's a bit, it's beside the point, but it's interesting. That's the thing, like when you look at how much of this is just kind of, it's, it's literally taking from just, the Greek philosophical tradition, and then because of the way it's been translated over the years, and you know, say it you will, ancient Greece sounds fucking badass when anglicized and Latinized, and then, you know, removed from context over the course of millennia. Say what you will of the Neoplatonists, but at least they had an ethos. Here's a great example. Hypostasis of the Archons, right? Know what that just means? What does that mean? Reality of the rulers. That's way less badass. It's less badass, but it's kind of badass in, like, it, it sounds like a political text, like the art of war or something, just like, or like, yeah, the reality of the rule. Yeah, so I, I could definitely see that as, like, a title of a manifesto. Yeah, yeah. And I would like to say that hypostasis here, that term is, like, I guess it can kind of translate to true reality. It's, like, the real reality, if you get what I mean, right? Yeah. Which may or may not necessarily be what we see in front of us. And... and in, in, in 4,000 years, um, people will dig up our religious texts and they'll translate it. And for them, the secret will seem like such a weird word that sounds so evocative. And it's full of great wisdom. Future would be another one there. A society? Um, yeah, I was thinking of, of, the, of the secret books from Oprah uh, specifically. I was thinking of a bunch of guys somehow digging up an old copy of Industrial Society in its future and being like... The yeah. secret texts. They find the secret. They find industrial society, and then they find um, they find the game. And they try to, and they hack together a religion based on the game, the oh secret, God. and industrial society and its discontents. That that is that's my post-apocalypse campaign right there. Fucking beautiful. <laughs> Are there any terms? That you th that I kind of went off on here that you think our listeners could you to use a bit more context on. I'd like to go back to Sophia. You had mentioned about how Sophia fucked up, but you didn't mention. I don't think how she sort of redeemed herself or she she put something in all of us that is helpful. That varies from tradition to tradition, actually. How intentional that was. Mm. My understanding is that she put in uh, that the divine spark in in all of us. 
is, is that's Sophia. Was placed Sophia. there by Sophia intentionally, yes. And that's what you see in a lot of traditions, but not all of them. I do know there's also, like, traditions where, like, like she placed it in there, and other traditions where it was the Aeons, other Aeons that did that. I like the tradition where Yaldabaoth is, Yaldabaoth is like halfway through making his material. Let's not get into Yaldabaoth yet. That's, that's a <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. big old pile <laughs> well, of <laughs> syllables that's <laughs> just like, wait, what? Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, the Demiurge. I like the yes. tradition where the Demiurge ha is halfway through like making his material play and he's quite happy with it. And he looks down and says, what are these two things? What are these two things walking around the gutter? Where do they come from? What the fuck? But then he figures out how to use them. I quite like that. Yeah, like that is, that is a key thing you see with like a lot of the Demiurge creation myths is that there's a lot of accident happening on his part. It's not just like, oh, yeah. he's separated from God and makes a overall pretty cool world. He just fucks up because he's imperfect. It's like, no, he's he's constantly making mistakes and not really understanding the all of the implications of where his creation will go in the long term because he has imperfect knowledge because he's so far removed from God. Almost as if he was trying to go off and do his own thing, and throughout the process, someone was fucking with him. Curious, huh? So the Demiurge had his own Demiurge? Oh, fuck! Oh, shit! No, I... I... I, I will get oh, back your turn this, I have a... Alright. <laughs> so, you know, sort of around the Mediterranean at the time, if talking, like, 2nd century to the 4th century AD, there's sort of three... Key Gnostic groups, traditions. And those are the Valentinians, the Sethians, and the and the Basildeans. Now, the Basildeans aren't in the Nagamata Library. We don't have any of their texts. We do have the Sethians and the Valentinians. So we have a actually from primary sources a pretty decent idea of what their doctrine actually was. And through secondary sources, a decent idea of what their history was, too. Hmm. The Valentinians are a bit closer to mainstream Christianity. And the Sethians are a bit more removed and a bit more cynical. A bit darker. Which do you want me to start with first? And the names suggest what they are, too, which I love. <laughs> They're like, it's just like Vampire the Masquerade groups. I mean, they're taken from literally the same... <laughs> Fucking naming schemes. All, all these occult urban fantasy RPGs are coming around during the Gnostic boom. Of course they're going to be drawing from this shit. And UA <laughs> yeah. is no exception. There was like a bit of... Um, because there was some time lag in the, after the discovery of the Nagamati manuscripts as they were being um, digested by academia and those it, the pieces of information got filtered out into the... The public, the, the the collective unconsciousness, if you will, and then it manifested um, a lot in the late nineties and was becoming very popular until, well, until nine eleven. Mm, curious. Yeah, and that was kind of a shock <laughs> to the psyche. Well, nine eleven and a lot of that stuff kind of petered off into a lot of that kind of like dissipate, I'd say, due to the Dan Brown shit. Right, that was kind of a yeah, place for all that yeah. interest to go. And just, you know, a lot of it just went with conspiracy theory turning mainstream because that whole worldview is Gnostic as fuck. It does explain some rumors I've heard of some secret uh, tapes taken from the 9-11 bombers that, that are what was what was read and described on them in the media as Allahu Akbar was actually Yaldabaoth before hitting the towers. 
But I digress. And back to the original question. <laughs> you want to go Sethians or Valentinians first? <laughs> not dignifying that. I'm not fucking dignifying that with any of a response. Yep. Um, so my choices are Basildians, uh, Sethians, and Valentinians. Basildians, uh, you probably want to cover last because I just don't have that much on them. Our main sources on them are polemics. We don't have primary sources for them, really. For, and the thing is, the Basildians. So we have two... Sources on them, which are Arrhenius and his Against Heresies, and Hippolytus, which is his refutation of all heresies. And these two books contradict each other on Basildian doctrine all the fucking time. They can't agree on what it actually is whatsoever. They just know it's bad. That's the point. It's bad and wrong, and you should not listen to them, and you should yes. listen to your Yes, and kind of the main <laughs> things that we know from them is that they influenced the Ophites, which were another Gnostic sect running around at the time, and they were a decent influence on Kabbalism. Ooh, very interesting. Which It's another rabbit hole. That's a whole other rabbit hole. <laughs> well, yeah, like, the thing about Kabbalism is people tend to use it as sort of like a just... It means Jewish mysticism. And no, Kabbalism is a very particular tradition of Jewish mysticism, starting with the Zohar, which came out in the 12th century AD. And you don't mess with the Zohar. But yeah, like, not, uh, what I'm getting at is Kabbalah. Kabbalah is actually fairly recent in terms of all these mystic Abrahamic uh, religious sects. Now, it was influenced by a lot of earlier Jewish mysticism, but as its own mystic tradition, it's pretty recent. But yeah, that's kind of the key thing about the Basildians. We really don't know that much about them because we don't really have primary sources of theirs. The evil, the evil spirit that lives in my brain is looking at the uh, Gnosticism topics page of Wikipedia and being like, you should just ask him about the Archontics, ask him about the Canites, ask him about the things he hasn't prepared. But no, oh, I, fuck no. I, I can, I can go over those in a broad stroke. Yeah, a lot of this is just me being like, okay, what the fuck do we have like actual texts from? Valentinian Sethians. Stop. All right, uh, let's go. After we do, after we cover the big ones, we could do like a, a lightning round of the other groups where we just cover. You could cover them well, as, as I panically <laughs> look through Wikipedia and see what I can grab. And I pretend I'm not author looking through Wikipedia trying to catch you up. Um, but yep. let's go with what you've actually researched. I would like to hear about first the more straight laced Valentinians before the Edithians. Okay. I think. So the earliest knowledge we got of the Valentinians came from against heresies. They and the Sethians are one of many groups that are covered there. Um, the sect is named after their leader, Valentinus, who was a prominent Christian leader in the 2nd century. Valentinus apparently studied under a student of Paul, actually. Mm. That's kind of hearsay. It's never really been confirmed, but that's sort of the source that's really hard to confirm. I'm assuming with that sort of thing, it's sort of like... Um... Six degrees or seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, but with St. Paul all of the well, time. Well, yeah, like, again, keep in mind, this is the second century, just, like, over a century removed from the actual life of Christ. Right? Yeah. Like, that's, that's pretty viable. That close connection is not at all impossible. Now, sources at the time say that Valentinus was a very charismatic and well-spoken religious leader. And he was actually quite prominent in the early church... 
to the point where he was actually considered for bishophood. Oh, interesting. I did, yeah, I, I read a bit about him, but I forgot most of it. But I do know that, yeah, he was... It was hard for them to completely dismiss him entirely from the canon. Well, and one interesting thing there is that apparently all this Gnostic stuff with his group, that didn't happen until after he was passed over for the role of bishop. So he's kind of like Isaac Newton getting crazy in his old age but still being considered a great scientist. He's still a good Catholic priest in the canon. <laughs> kind of, but also like, all right, you guys are going to have me be bishop? Fuck you guys. I'm going to come up with my own tradition of Christianity. With forms and pleromas. That's right. That's how you do it. Now, a lot of his cosmology is kind of, you know, usual Gnostic shit. His name for the monad is the Bythos. It's less catchy, I think. I don't, know what it, I don't know what it sounded like back then, but I think it's less catchy back then as well. So the bythos roughly translates to the depth or the profundity. That's definitely an overthought fancy name. It's like, we call our Absolutely. God the profundity. Now, nah, come on, man. Come on. The, the absolute unit versus the profundity. Come on. The only acceptable alternative is Chungus. <laughs> <laughs> from the, the Greek Chungos. That's right. Or excuse me, the Greek Kongos. Because I don't think there's a CH sound in the ancient Greek. Now, Valentinians are, I mean, as far as Gnostic sects, they kind of in a way adhere pretty close to mainstream Christianity. Or at least as much as one can while still being, you know, Gnostic Platonic. So, in this tradition, Sophia doesn't create the Demiurge. Sophia is cast out of the Pleroma at one point, and, or at least part of, part of her is, and that is what Sophia Akamoth is. That's what Akamoth is. Um, in the Valentinian tradition, she seems to kind of, Sophia kind of represents the supreme female principle. Sophia is trying to emulate Bethos, and... While contemplating uh, his love and mightiness, produces offspring without conjugal intercourse. That's an important thing to keep in mind about the Valentinian doctrine, is that their aeons come in pairs. Mm, that's interesting. And Dang, each pair emanates from the previous pair. And each pair always has a feminine aspect and a masculine aspect. Mm. Okay. Dualism in here. Interesting. So, Sophia, trying to emulate Bethos, tries the, the act of creation without the masculine half of the pair while contemplating the magnificent oneness of the almighty monad and accidentally creates a portion of herself, emanates a portion of herself which is premature and imperfect, and that's Akamoth. So it sounds like a combination of uh, penis envy, daddy issues, and onanism was the cause of all this. The source of all problems in the world, obviously. Women getting off without men. Women trying to create without men. So Akamoth creates the Demiurge, and the interesting thing with this is that um, that's specifically Akamoth trying to imitate God and 
in this edition, the Demiurge isn't really, isn't really considered hostile quite so much, just misguided and imperfect. Because mm. he's birthed into nothing. They're cut off from the Pleroma, right? So he has no idea what he, what this world is. And things like, oh, I'm the only thing here. Obviously, I'm God. Well, yeah. That is the basically what the god of Bible sort of thought was. Like, hey, here I am. I am. Um, now I am, I am. Right. am. I am, I am. <laughs> and he didn't... Like he wouldn't know any. He didn't know any better. So yeah, like it, it, yeah, exactly. It's not the demiurge being this hostile guy. It's him making a reasonable mistake that uh, the source comes from, you know, a grand and archetypal act of rubbing one out. Try to create without a man. Fucked up. There's this whole comedy of errors that eventually leads to the demiurge creating the material world. This sounds like it was written by a man who was angry at his wife and his wayward son at the same time. Well, like I said, this is this is kind of what I'm getting at when this is the Nostra tradition that, I guess, in spirit, hews the closest to the original Christian tradition. After the Demiurge creates the world, he immediately realizes that he fucked up. Mm. He's like, oh shit, all right. Okay, this is a problem. So, to help fix that, he sends a messiah. And here's the thing there. In this tradition, Sophia, with her masculine counterpart, also created Christ. Created Christ? The Christ was an emanation? Yes. The demiurge in the tradition is Christ's nephew. Right. Oh. It, okay. Oh, yeah, that, so Christ and the Sophia, they're the, they're the couple. No, no, well, it, it, sometimes yes, some, sometimes no. Sometimes no. Yeah, but um, that varies actually within some traditions. Relationships are hard. It's complicated. It's complicated. Yes, especially when, like, for 16 layers of emanation, you've been having kids with your own sister, which then in turn have kids and so on. It's a, it's a soap opera. It's a cosmic soap opera. That's all mythology is, dude. That's what it always yeah, is. That's true. That, that is true. That is true. But when the Demiurge sends a messiah to try to fix the world with the greater knowledge, Christ goes, passes through the bear of the Pleroma into our world as Jesus so he can bring this greater wisdom. Mm. And that's what Christ is in the Valentinian tradition. He is something sent by the Demiurge to fix his mistakes. And also something sent by the Aeons to allow the people in the imperfect world of the Demiurge to come into the Pleroma. By granting them the wisdom to allow them to cross that barrier. Sure, okay. And that's, that's the gist of it. Part of that sort of sounds reminiscent of the role of the Bodhisattva in Buddhism. Like, you can go into Nirvana or you can help the people like i've noticed a bunch of that like the whole getting help from above you need that help from above because there's arguments that certain um modern pop cultural interpretations of gnosticism sort of lean towards like people independently like waking up to the illusion when many of the traditions were like no 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 no, no. you need you need the help from above you're not gonna do it by yourself you need the help it's not gonna happen by you. you can't do it by yourself you can't just find things out by yourself you can't just figure it out 
Um, but anyway, I digress. And that's basically the gist of the Valentinians, right? Like, they, in spirit, are pretty close to original Christianity. Like, yes, they're taking a lot of Gnostic aspects of it, but you still have sort of that strongly patriarchal dimension. You still have, like, this emphasis on pairing. And you have this, and again, the Demiurge isn't even, like, a cruel figure. He's a mistaken one, which is interesting. I kind of feel I could see what the, the, the Neverwin universe where uh, Valentinus became the Pope and became the, like, well, was the Pope? It would, it would be very different in many ways, but I feel that it, lot, it would end up evolving similarly to how the Catholic Church. It would have been a hundred differences, but it would be not, it wouldn't be fully Gnostic, fully automated, luxury, gay, space Gnosticism like we really want. It would be a muted version. Well, that's the Pleroma. You can't, you know, all these worlds are still going to be imperfect and you can't get the luxury, uh, pure oneness space communism outside of it, unfortunately. So with that, I've gone over the Valentinians. Now we got the Sethians. And the Sethians are like the darker and edgier take on Gnosticism, which also ends up being kind of the more influential one in a lot of ways. It was, the, it was the late 90s. The late 290s. And the late 190s. This always happens in the 90s. So, all right. The Sethians actually, in their own doctrine, considered themselves to predate Christ. They considered themselves right. followers of Seth, who was the third lesser known son of Adam and Eve, after Cain and Abel. He was considered a very wise man. He's not big in Christianity, but in... Judaism and Islam, he's actually pretty prominent, from what I know. All right. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. It's just the story already sounds like, oh, it was Jesus's cooler, edgier brother. It's, his name was Gary Stew. No, that's Q. That's Q. <laughs> that's the other. All right. Oh, yes, that's true. This is the version of Cain and Abel that didn't have the problems. It was super rad and cool, and God and him hung out all the time, and God told him all the secrets of the universe and shit, and it was super, it was super rad. Yep. But from the historical sources, more likely they were a Jewish sect, like a Jewish splinter sect that took a lot of ideas from Christian and Platonic and contemporary Gnostic sources. I, and I warn you, as you go in, I'll be listening great interest, but just like glancing at the page, the Wikipedia page, and seeing Second Logos of the Great Seth and like references to the... That's about well, the well, well, Their structure is pretty easy to explain. It's, it's a bunch of pairings. Yep. Going down the line. This is all over the fucking place. I'm just going to say that, like, the references to the great Seth, it makes it impossible for for me not to just imagine uh, Seth as just Seth Green. It's just going to be Seth Green (laughs) in my head. Or Seth Rogen. (laughs) Seth... Oh, they're both good options. They're both good options. I will, I'll, I'll see what it ends up like landing upon. I know Seth Rogen's pretty good. No, yeah, I'm imagining (laughs) Seth Rogen in the fucking old robes. Like, out on the edge of Eden, smoking a blunt, and be like, man, you ever really contemplate God? Like, just by yourself for a while? And, and I, could, I could easily imagine Seth Rogen making that movie. But that's not here nor there. So, the Sethians refer to the monad as the, the unknown god. Like, the highest aspect of god that is unknowable. That's an interesting spin on Gnostic tradition, because they are, you know... They're all about that knowledge, all about that gnosis. And to kind of have, be like, all right, still at the highest level, though, you still still can't fully understand them. That's interesting. 
And uh, again, unlike the, you know, kind of linear descent that the Valentinians have, the Sethians, it's all over the fucking place. But we still have the pattern that Sophia, wisdom, feminine aspect, extremely far removed from the monad. And the Sethian tradition is where most of the popular knowledge of the Gnostic origin creation story comes from, where Sophia tries to imitate God in the act of creation, fucks up, creates the Demiurge, throws out the Pleroma. In this case, the Demiurge is spiteful. I, I just do, I just thinking now of the original, like the Valentinian uh, Demiurge being like the misguided one. And the Sethians are like, no, he's just an ass, he's just fucked up asshole, man. And I'm just like, it's, it's, it's darker edgier, it doesn't give a fuck. The Demiurge in the Sethian tradition is what is known as Yaldabaoth, which we were discussing a bit earlier. It translates in Hebrew to daughter of the void and in Aramaic to the son of chaos. He's often known as the serpent with the lion's head. I'm sure like at least like a good number of listeners have seen sort of like the Gnostic art of like the, you know, the snake with the lion's head or at least, you know, have seen the fucking memes where it's like the little snake body and the son Spurdo who's doing all the damn weird shit. I think... I, I I know what meme you mean. I think the meme is not as popular as we might think it is. But I know. What you I mean. think it might just be among the p the circles that we're in. But also, that's a lot of our listeners anyway. So that description, the serpent of the lion's head, is really interesting to me because serpent is a trickster, but lion is like you know, lion is very much associated with God and divinity. So that's literally like trickster that presents themselves as a god yeah when he's ejected in the pleroma he actually steals a piece of divinity from sophia it's not like sophia coming in later he he nabs a bit of it so he can create him and that piece of divinity is what he uses to create the archons his servants which then create the world according to his plan and he keeps fucking up and refusing to cop to his own mistakes. And there's a great example of this. Like, a lot of this is chronicled in the Apocryphon of John, which is kind of like our main primary source on Sethian creation. I'd say, like, probably, like, the best example of the darker, edgier take on Gnosticism comes with how the Demiurge fits into the Eden story. So the Demiurge creates Adam, and during this he accidentally transfers a portion of this divine power he stole from Sophia into the first physical human body, which is where the human spirit comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Now, attempting to isolate and regain the power he's lost, he then creates Eve from Adam's rib, who he then attempts to rape. It's one of these ones, huh? It's one of these. It's, it's that kind of dark and edgy comic, I see. Yeah, but because he's isolated this divine power in Eve, that's why women are capable of the act of creation. And according to the Apocrypha of John, most scholars interpret certain parts of the document to mean reincarnation is true in their doctrine. So though that initial divine spark that the Demiurge stole, is then accidentally put in to Adam and Eve, 
is then split apart through, you know, them giving birth to the human race. Yeah. And, you know, recycled in certain ways, because it's not like the Demiurge can in and of himself create divine power. He can just only kind of... All we have is all we're doing is just splitting up the stuff that was originally in Adam and Eve. It's interesting because it ties into the ideas of like a lot of the old, the, the, the original, the Genesis and subsequent, all these people in the Old Testament who lived fucking thousands of years and they were great and did all these things. And as time went on, like more people came along, there was shorter lives and things got crappier. And it, it, it fits. It's just the divine spark has been diluted by these 7.5 billion people. Over however many years, essentially, yeah, and I do like, like, in a fucked up sense, this seems like almost it, this feels like a woman conscious take of the Eden and creation myth. I would definitely call it uh, progressive for its time. I wouldn't call it feminist. But... Yeah, feminist perhaps a bit much, but you know, saying that like a huge part of the flaws in the world come from God attempt from the false God attempting to rape Eve in the Garden of Eden. Maybe but it, it does seem just sort of like in one tradition it's like it's saying, oh all the problems start with women because women are weak and don't know their place. And the other tradition is saying, oh yeah, we are women are weak and don't know their place. And also there are bad men that need to, that women need to be protected by, but they don't, they don't know it. Like that just seems like, mm, yeah, well, like, is it better? Is it better? Well, I, I the <laughs> thing I'd like to iterate on here is one, there's less of that kind of man, a woman, heterosexual hierarchy to Sethianism. It's all over the place. And there's still, feminine aspects of god it's not sophia throwing her stuff away even like there's some of these setting traditions imply that the demiurge runs off and steals that divinity it's not sophia granting divinity to something that shouldn't have it it's sophia experimenting with creation accidentally making something terrible which then runs off and spitefully creates the material world and then attempts to exercise tyrannical control over it yeah that's that's fair i do like the sort of any kind of like old traditions where it's like things like everything bad was it was all caused by an experiment that went wrong uh that's why i like some um some hotep stuff as well because it's all the shit was an experiment gone wrong <laughs> no part of that's intentional because do remember that yakub Hated his blackness, and that is why he created the other races. And not just white people, though white people are the most evil of the other races. I, I, I have to say, I enjoy those. I enjoy them. I probably wouldn't enjoy them I if they were more well known, but I do enjoy them. I mean, in a sense, like the fact that you have this theology that, in any sense, like, empathizes with a woman being sexually assaulted as opposed to. Her being considered like tainted in some way, right? And it it does in a way. It kind of it sounds like how the Greek gods would talk shit about Prometheus, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. Well, I think of it like this, right? Like, it. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's kind of what you're supposed to do with holy books. So I'll defend it. You have this fundamentally wrong and evil and backwards entity, and it attempting rape ends up being one of the, because it's so backwards and evil, being one of the most, like, 
and the long-term greatest acts for mankind that ever happens. I mean, it's 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 the uh, it's that it's that it's that sort of twist. It's that a sort of it's that that film would get rave reviews at the Cannes Film Festival, but not do very well in the box office. I feel it'd probably be directed by Dan Aronofsky. Yeah, yeah. It is a Gnostic take without the heteronormativity, the cosmic heteronormativity of the Valentinians, you know, right? That 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 I will grant you. Comparatively progressive, especially for the time, I I stand by that. I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. All right. And those are the two key Gnostic sects, and it only really took us two hours. And I think that's kind of the key thing that I want to... Removing all the, like, years of telephone game and sort of the mysticism that comes from texts that are primary... that haven't been translated throughout history over and over again, that, you know, it doesn't have that line of continuity that, you know, a modern Bible had with, with King James and going back to earlier Bibles from there and going back to the original Bible that was decided upon at the Council of Nicaea. No, like, there was just centuries where we had no real idea what these texts were actually saying and what the actual doctrine of these groups are. Because, in a lot of cases, they were actively suppressed by the Catholic Church. So that means that this great larger power was suppressing the true knowledge of the universe to keep people in the dark so they can't come to a true understanding of the universe and thus go to a higher plane. Yes, I'm absolutely saying the Pope and the papacy is a demiurge. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a it's a treat this, you know, kind of um I mean mysticism of course, but this kind of uh hallowedness and uh esotericism, which is appropriate in certain cases, like another, there were hermetic texts in the Nag Hammadi library, ones that weren't Christian whatsoever. But, I mean, when you really look at the components, it's it's just a bunch of intellectuals that were really into Plato, and also into Christianity, and be like, hmm, how can we kind of put these two things together? The Demiurge is a Platonic idea. The Aeons are literally Platonic, and the other meaning of it, in that they're Archetypes, they are fundamental forms, archetypes for the human spirit. The entire cosmos is just the allegory of the cave mixed with Christian doctrine. It's Platonic Christianity. Oh, uh, uh, there's a and that's the sound of the bell, everyone. Everyone knows what that means. That means that we'll be back in a few moments How for the, the lightning round. But first, first we have a word from our sponsor. Who put a bell in here? <laughs> Welcome back to our show with the lightning round. Where the fuck did you get the fucking card? <laughs> Where did this what? booth come from? <laughs> Look, we talked about the Monty Hall problem. I summoned a spirit. That was a trick. Um, uh, now, the are you ready? Hall, of course. Are right, you ready right. for the lightning round? That explains the lady with the sequin dress over there. Hi, Paula. It's been a bit. All right. Lightning round, yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready, let's, All let's right. talk. 
obscure That's good. Christian sex. <laughs> and obscure uh, Christian uh, sex. <laughs> All right. And we're ready. Start the timer. Three, two, one. Which Gnostic sect uh, identified its name by the first victim of the Demiurge, a character in the Bible, the, New T- the Old Testament? Oh, I don't fucking know. Give me a name. I, I know these better by name than by anything like that. Which uh, Genesis character? Genesis character. Early character. Eve would be my best bet, but... I am correct for this one. It is... Or Adamites? The answer is the Cainites, who venerated Cain as the first victim of the Demiurge. All right. Well, this shows you how much I know, especially, like, the obscure ones. Which... No, at the time it is going. Which Gnostic sect believed that Jesus was not divine, but rather his soul was steadfast and pure, and he remembered those things that he had witnessed within the sphere of the unbegotten God? who themselves believed that they were able to transcend the physical realm and were no longer bound by Mosaic law. Okay, that's a lot of Gnostic <laughs> traditions, actually. There's several that believed that they Jesus won. was either they won. never actually immortal or mortal. Oh, God. Um, I believe the Pollicans were one? That's probably correct. I would also have accepted the Cup Crates. Um... <laughs> Next, so, which listeners, Gnostic- what we should be getting from this is there's a lot of fucking obscure Gnostic groups. The Valentinians and the Sethians aren't even like necessarily Gnostic groups so much as Gnostic tradition. Paula, Paula, get the whip, get the whip. Um, all right, oh, which, God, Gnostic oh, sect, oh. which Gnostic sect combined um, Gnostic beliefs with Pythagorean number theory and was regarded by Irenaeus as an affair of silly women? Oh, I really should know this. I love all those things. Um, you got me. <laughs> the Marcosians. Mm. Um, now, which... Out. I need to check these motherfuckers uh, out. Uh, this will be several. There'll be several, but there's a main one. Which um, of the many uh, Gnostic sect uh, Women were... held special status in the Marcosian communities, and they were regarded as prophetesses. All women, apparently. Paula! Paula! Use your special status to whip him again! Uh... <laughs> Which of the Gnostic sects were particularly criticized for their Christian love feasts? Uh, would this be the Bor- Borberites? I mean, I guess what do you mean by love feast? Because the Borberite love feast, at least in the doctrine, is... Uh... Incorrect! The answer is the Nicolaitans! The Nicolaitans! Which... Uh, You're throwing Gnostic around, sect? Okay, one. <laughs> All these fucking... And it, like, Paula! You keep whipping me. <laughs> Which... Gnostic sect was believed to originate with a particularly famous Samaritan holy man. Oh, I, yeah, no, I, I don't know these terms. I, I don't know. You these would, you would, you sect. should know. You would know the Simonians, Simon Magus. Ah, uh, you should have known oh, that. I know you love Simon uh, yeah, Magus. No, I, no yeah, okay. I'll give me that one. I should have known that one. I did look into that too. I didn't know that. Is, Mag- it, I didn't know that Simon the Magus was considered a Samaritan. He was. Um, now, uh, which, this is an easy one, this is a gimme, which of the sects was particularly criticized for their heretical views on the snake? Oh, God, one fucking sec. Oh, my God. We talked, you already mentioned this. them. That's the thing. You, or, you already the mentioned them. They're in the Borberites? Uh, before, before that, there. The, the Sethians? <sighs> Uh, oh fights! You mentioned them, I think. The fights? I don't remember mentioning the fucking oh fights, dude. That make, that all right, all right, all right. You mean the snake in general or the serpent in particular? The serpent, I the serpent, the serpent. 
Because again, I mentioned that I mentioned a document of theirs. I guess I didn't know it was an O fight document in particular. Well, now you do. Um, which Gnostic sect believed that the soul is the food of the Archons and powers with which they cannot live because she is of the dupum above and gives them strength when she is has become imbued with knowledge? I don't know. Like that's going to continue to be the fucking answer here. <laughs> the Archontics. Um, all right, let's skip on. Easy one. No, it's a harder one. Which Gnostic influenced religion once existed in Persia and spread as far as China. Oh, that's Manichaeism. Easy. There you go. There we go. And which You're saying Gnostic that was harder. religion? Which Gnostic no, like, oh, hey, influence? One of the most influential and popular religions in history. That, that this is hard. All these obscure ass Gnostic sects. You should know this, Frank. You should know this. Yeah, that's the fucking Manichaeans. Which I honestly consider straight up Gnostic. I consider them straight up Gnostic. That's the thing. I don't think Gnostic is inherently Christian so much as Christian influenced. Members of which Gnostic sect fled their country because of the U.S. armed forces? The Mandaeans and they there fled we the go. Reasons. <clears throat> and that's enough. And that's enough. All right. Um, I that's enough humiliating open... me for not knowing the fucking obscure Gnostic sects that you pulled up from the category on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I'm gonna give that to you. Um, How are you getting for your fucking good work? reception out here. Alright, uh, thank you, Paula. Uh, thank you, Paula. Right. Uh, thank you, Paula. Now, I've seen you again. I'm sorry now, you had to get me. Now, the, my, my only part of this, my only part of this was this briefcase in which I have not the original Jeffrey Epstein, I'm afraid, but a 2008 homunculus created by Jeffrey Epstein, one of his collection of homunculi. Uh, which one I was able to purchase at Harrods of London. Um, so, so... No, I've heard about this, Epstein, in the whole cloning facility he had at his, uh, Texas ranch. You know, he's partially trying to, like, create, like, a weird harem, but he was also just literally trying to fuck himself. No, 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 this is, this is, this, he did have that, that, that's, that's, this is separate oh, from this that. Is this is the... Alright, alright. Well, the, you remember the, uh, create homunculus ritual from 2E? Yeah, 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 Um, it, so it, it's basically a 12-inch, like, it's, it's a G.I. Joe-sized Jeffrey Epstein from about 2008. I don't know, it, it's something, it, it's something, alright? He's in a jar. He's been in a jar for a while. So a jar in a briefcase. I hope you poked holes in it. I'd like to have a chance to sque squeeze the life out of him myself. Well, I, I, I do want you to check because he's pretty small and I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. I want you to just check before you squeeze him to death that he's not a homunculus of Anthony Bourdain because that would be a shame. We can even, we can even hire like one of those little miniature chefs. For him, right? That's right. That's right. Now, <laughs> you and make if, the adorable and, real food on YouTube. And even if it is Jeffrey Epstein and he's desperately trying to cook well so he can pretend to be mini Anthony Bourdain, I think that's also a, a, a good punishment. Yeah, well, I appreciate I appreciate the prize nonetheless, Dorfson. And I guess speaking of filth, uh, you didn't bring up the Borberites, who are a particularly interesting Gnostic sect that I don't I wanted to bring up. Because right. um, it's almost like I left those ones out deliberately because I knew you had that bed. <laughs> Thank you, Thompson. You know exactly my sensibility. <laughs> yeah, let's just go to some of these uh, other Gnostic sects. And now we're going to be kind of jumping around a bit, depending on like what Thompson's interested in and what I'm interested in and what I can kind of consider, you know, historically important. 
So the Borberites were a, another Gnostic sect that was contemporary with the previous three that we talked about. And it is also mentioned in a anti-heresy polemic. We don't have any of the original texts. So all the share I'm about to say is very, you know, suspect. Just keep that in mind. This is not a reliable source and we don't have any primary sources on this stuff to really back them up. These guys may not even even existed. They might have just been a construct made based on rumor or complete falsehood to slander Gnostic sects. Or they could have been as fucked up because there were lots of cults back then and weird sure. shit in cults. It's it, Yeah, come on. So this comes from the know. Greek word borboros, meaning mud. And borborites basically translates to filthy ones. You get a sense of what you guys are getting into. According to Epiphanius, the mainstream Christian scholar who wrote about him, they were inspired by Sethianism, and they had elements of sexual sacramentalism that involved them engaging in a version of the Eucharist where they would smear their hands with menstrual blood and semen, and then consume that as the blood and body of Christ. I mean, it makes sense. It, make, it kind of makes sense. Also alleges that whenever one of the women in the church was experiencing a menstrual cycle, they'd take the menstrual blood and everyone in the church would eat it as part of a sacred ritual. And Epiphanius claims to have had first-hand knowledge of the sect and ran away from certain from Gnostic women that approached him. Free bleeding with their blue hair. We have not been able to save the young man, but rather have abandoned him to the clutches of the ruler. Is what they apparently said to him. And, and he said, begone, harlot. Remember the ruler literally means archons. We have not been able to save the young man, but rather have abandoned him to the clutches of the archons. Uh, according to him as well, they had a holy text of theirs, which we've never found, called The Greater Question of Mary, which contained an episode... In which Jesus took Mary Magdalene up to the top of a mountain, where he pulled a woman out of his own side, engaged in sexual <laughs> intercourse with her, and then upon ejaculating, Jesus drank his own semen and told Mary, Thus we must do, that we may live. Upon hearing this, Mary instantly fainted, to which Jesus <laughs> responded, by helping her up and telling her, Oh, thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And that was the point at which she fainted. That was the point. Up, up to that point, she was just like, Oh, this is a bit strange. Jesus takes her alone up the mountain, pulls a lady from his side, fucks her in front of her, and then he's like, Oh, yeah, no, by the way, we all have to do this. And then when Mary faints, he's just like, Oh, thou of little faith. You know that there's an authentic thaumaturge out there that's got that's recreated that ritual. Just take oh, out your rib. It's you want your rib waifu. The rib waifu is important. No, that, that definitely checks out. You can make your waifu rule real, but and what the ritual is is you extract your own rib. You have to do it yourself. Yep. Can't be your surgeon that does it. And yep. you put it into a Daki Makura, a body pillow. Of said wife. Ah, yes! Yes! That's fucking... That's perfect. That's perfect. Once, and then lie how next many, to it how for many three days and three nights. Yes! That, that, that's how a many... good, like, three... That's a good three six at least. Yeah, three six At least. Uh, this is what I should have made. Carrot <laughs> Uh Anyway. Uh... 
And then uh, at the end of the third night, you know, she's a human. She doesn't look like an anime girl, but, you know, she has, like, the same color hair, same color eyes, which might be weird. And the same features and personality of your preferred waifu. This only no, works I, for women. You can't do it for husbandos. I think they they would be. That's that's the objective. That's your objective. Of there you the go. It's mo- figure out a way oh. to modify the ritual. It's 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 a cabal of thirsty women. It's, not necessarily feminist. And not well, I just gonna say. Just I was gonna say women. for Joshi cabal. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the board rights were interesting. They're fun and fucked up and weird. But they also, it's very likely that they just didn't exist. And like, what, literally one of his, one of the writer's sources that he uses is, there was a time when a woman tried to pick me up and she was a Borberite. You can understand <laughs> our skepticism here. And he posted this on 4chan and Anon said, fake and gay. And thus un- the great Anon said, False and sodomitic. What happens from here, actually, and I'll I'll be upfront on that. I I'll, there's a lot of Gnostic sex, and as we saw during the lightning round, I have by no means covered all of them. I was mostly kind of just trying to look into the um, early ones, the ones that kind of helped with my point of it. This is just spicy Platonism. It's the best kind of Platonism, spicy Platonism. Kind of what happens with the Gnostic tradition after this is there's a lot of cracking down from the church. And not so much in terms of, like, inquisitions. It's more just, you aren't welcome here. And where a lot of those sects ends up going, a lot of them just die out and we don't know what the fuck happened to them. Like, that's most of them. We have no idea what happened to the Sethians. We have no idea what happened to the Valentinians. But a lot of these groups do seem to influence later Gnostic sects. And there are a couple... That either because they were influenced by the Gnostic sects, or there's actually a degree of continuity, as is the case of the Mandatans, are still around in some cases. And I can go into the Mandatans a bit, because they're super fucking interesting too. But they're also not super Christian. Well, they just disappeared into the... They faded away into the, and became the shadow government that's been pulling the strings all along. The, the sex rituals, we covered this. They finally got in the Pleroma, good on them. So, they continue to have sex rituals in the Pleroma. Well, of course. Why else you go to Pleroma? The oneness of God. His fullness. I, I mean, when you think about it, Pleroma sort of suggests a kind of chaos. It's a, it's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of fluidity to it, and there's a kind of viscosity to it that does suggest cosmic mud. So there you go. Okay. So, a lot of them flood east. A lot of them flood east. Kind of more just kind of drift east. Yeah, out of the Mediterranean, they're given, and about out of Western Europe, they're given, you know, a bit more clemency and able to do able to do what they want with less oversight. This is the exact sort of dynamic that leads to the split in the church later on, into the, the Catholic Church and Orthodoxy, right? They're isolated and kind of let to develop their own things. And as far as you can tell, like, a lot of them die out, but those traditions hmm. do, even after the fall of Rome, do stay around a bit in the territory of the Byzantines, it seems like. We see a lot of influence coming from the Mandaeans, actually, because a lot of these sort of mid-medieval Byzantine and Gnostic sects are extremely dualist. There's always kind of that dimension to uh, Gnosticism, 
but it tends to set up the Demiurge as a more explicitly satanic Lucifer adversarial figure. I do feel that like some of that dualism, the dualistic character, uh, it varies depending on how much influence uh, um, Zoroastrian had over the whole affair. Because that... Well, or Manichaeism later, in like Man. Wait, but, uh, but, that, but that was that was that was Gnostic, yes, and, that and was to a certain degree Buddhism, Gnostic, and it, well, believe. no, that was before Islam. Excuse me. Yeah, and Buddhism and Judaism, yes. and Manny's whole thing is he Quite was like, I am unifying all of the disparate religions and doctrines in the world into a singular one. And he was the last guy to ever say that. Yeah, that's the thing. He was the last prophet. And was <laughs> what God sent down. And I believe Manny actually came from a Christian background originally. And, you know, considered Christ a great prophet and all that goodness. And I think you know more about Manichaeism than I do. But, yeah, like, he, he was basically, like, Manny was a scholar of pretty much any religion he could get his hands-on, and integrated pretty much all of them. And because he was in, you know, the Middle East instead of Europe, he had access to, I'd say, a lot more, a lot a greater variation of religious doctrines than most groups you're seeing up in Europe. So that's how he's able to get a hold of stuff like Buddhism and Buddhist texts and all that. Yeah, I do know that, I don't know much more about Manichaeanism than you, because I do know a bit, but I do know that um, the only fully intact Manichaean building is the Taoan Temple in China, which is in Fujian. And there is a bunch of there's theories about certain um, Buddhist and Taoist temples and shrines and things. There's some theories that some of huh. them aren't actually Buddhist, but rather crypto Manichaean uh, holdouts because they it was called Morni Jiao in Chinese and so that's cool have, that's and, and I like that a lot I like that a lot even if it's complete bullshit it's, it's cool. interesting so it's real that's how that works yeah of course that's how this works yeah well because yeah I know Manichaeanism was in its heyday like extremely popular in the Middle East and it spreads all the way down to India all the way through China and Sort of falls it was out of big in China for a while. Yeah, and it's big, big in China, China for a long while, even after it's fallen out of favor in the Middle East. But in a lot of ways, it kind of ends up pre like Islam ends up being very influenced by it, and in certain cases, there's still yes. Manichaean holdouts that end up getting wiped out or absorbed into Islam in the Middle East. Now it's spread through the, as you said before, with the uh, the holdouts in the Byzantine Empire, and I don't want to jump ahead of the gun, but I'm, is there any like I know there's links to the Bogomils. Well, yeah, that's uh, the thing. So the Polakins were very influential upon the Bogomils. Mm, it's like this is Daisy Chain because they were in Armenia. Yep, and the right? Bogomils end up in turn they're thought to have been the foundation of Catharism. French one. That was the one where... That was the Albigensian Crusade. Well, because, I mean, if I remember correctly... Yes. Kill them all and let God set them out. The Balkans have been around for a long time. Still in Armenia, but also kind of like around Serbia and Bulgaria. Like, into the 18th century. They were never really, like, wiped out. They were just kind of absorbed into more mainstream Christianity over time. Or Islam. So, now, what I'm immediately thinking... Because of Armenians. Now, the most obvious conspiracy theory that I would I would 
make up for their navies is uh, I have a campaign called Keeping Up with the Paulicians, which is about the the, the hidden sect of uh, Gnostics within Kardashian Empire and the links with, um, oh, what's his face? Um, Kanye West. Kanye West as the Demiurge. Think about it. No, that Think works very it. well. That works very well. Have you heard the shit that he pulled recently at his l- listening party? No, I haven't. Oh, God. Um, he went on wires and ascended into pillars of holy light. He built a one-to-one recreation of his childhood home in the middle of this sports stadium that he was performing in. Kanye West is a demiurge? Absolutely. I could immediately buy that. I could buy him as the The Kardashians? Kardashians. As the Kardashians, uh, crypto, uh, Polishians? Absolutely. I, I think, I'm thinking, like, I'm, now I'm thinking because of Kim Kardashian is going to have that whole mysterious, like, sort of vibe, which just seems like, maybe she's, maybe she's Sophia, maybe she's the divine wisdom, maybe it's, it, it's all this shit over again, it's, it's, it's the emanation of one of the Gnostic cosmologic tales. No, this is definitely, this is, that's, that's a yeah, campaign that's right there. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> no, that's fucking perfect. Excellent. Okay, so... You can, one of the ways I can see this sort of um, lineage between the Polycians uh, to the Bogomils to the Cathars is they're all dualists. They all have like a bunch of Gnostic aspects to their... And I admittedly don't know as much about them again. And they tend to believe in reincarnation, which is very interesting for any Christian sect and has very interesting... One of the most important questions that any religion can address is what happens to you after you die? Yes. Yes. And because the, apparently our divine spark is limited and recycling it's the best bet we got. I mean, it, make, it makes sense. It, it does make sense. Uh, just that's why, that's why reincarnation and transmigration of the soul has turned up so many times in faith. I believe the Bogomils have, again, also been around for a long... They were cracked down on by the Catholic Church a bit and also just ran up against a lot of the, you know... Influence of Islam in the region at the time. Uh, I'm actually not seeing any, anything here on what happened. I'm admittedly just skimming Wikipedia. I do remember there is some actual like historical, some pretty some historical proof l- that leans towards them. Some of the very earliest Cathars actually being Bogomils that migrated over to France after several generations. I mean, yeah, the, the connection is complicated and they were wiped out <laughs> yeah like uh, so, some scholars uh think that the cathars were an offshoot others think they were just influenced by them through you know teaching and literature being shared uh either way yeah the bogmills ain't around anymore really and neither are the cathars and the cathars is one of the most the inquisition of the cathars the albigensian crusade is pretty widely considered one of the greatest atrocities the catholic church ever committed millions of people died and were burned at the stake it's, yeah, it's intense. It's intense. Yeah. And uh, I guess for a bit more um, context here, the Cathars were a Gnostic religious group that were centered in, around, like, the countryside of France. Also were called the Albigensians because they were named after the city Albi in southern France, which is kind of where movement really came around. They were a very ascetic group. They had this whole tradition of prefects where one could uh that was basically just kind of like their priests were also their teachers and that was a very important thing women could be prefects which was interesting yeah i have heard of that i have heard that 
I did hear they didn't, like, I don't know how much of this is apocryphal or whatever, or just propaganda, but they, did, they didn't like to have sex, right? They didn't want to propagate because putting more people into the uh, into this horrible universe is, is considered a, a dick move. They were kind of anti-natalist in that fashion. I don't, yeah, I don't believe so, actually. Um, there's certainly Gnostic groups that kind of leaned towards that, but... That's what I say, it might be, down, it might be propaganda. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, I actually believe it's the opposite. The thing is that the prefix were not prohibited from having children or sleeping with women. Like, one of their big things is that the baptism is something that you did at the last second. You did it on your deathbed. Mm, mm. Of course, the problem of that is, like, what if you die on the battlefield or some shit? No, like, yes, uh, that's still. a legitimate problem, yeah. They would have they would have thought about that. They would have been like, uh, they can just baptize, like, like, the Mormons will baptize, like, Jewish people when, in their graves. Like, just do it. Post-mortem. Oh, excuse me. Um, no, they were baptized before, I was thinking. So they did a baptismal ritual upon death. They believed that you were doomed to be reincarnated until you achieved salvation through consolamentum, which was a form of baptism that was done right before you died. Huh. By that, you could return to, like, the grace of God, the pleroma. They didn't You really use the Gnostic term, what we now think was the Gnostic terminology. Because, like, yeah, it's important to keep in mind, like, that stuff is, like, a lot of it's just decontextualized Greek, or Latinized Greek, that is given this greater weight. But when you have a greater degree of, like, actual continuity between yourself and earlier Gnostic groups, then the terminology is going to change at the time. It's true. It's true. It will adapt. Um, and I'll get into that, actually, um, changing terminology a bit later, but... One question I do want to ask you is something you mentioned to me before recording, uh, which I think might be relevant, uh, since we're on the on the on the topic of cathars reincarnation and reincarnation. Yes, I would like to introduce you and the listeners to a man by the name of Doctor Arthur Gwerdham, who was an English psychiatrist who had a very interesting. he had, he had a great deal of interest in the cathars which manifested in a particularly interesting way was his book, The Cathars and Reincarnation, mm. which is him chronicling his experiences with just purely coincidentally coming across a huge amount of people in his hometown of Bath, England, who claim to have been reincarnated Cathars. It is, it is quite the coinkydink. One of which was a woman patient of his who he ended up getting involved with. And that was because it, under hypnosis, she revealed that uh, she, during the Albigensian Crusade, had burned at the stake, but beforehand had carried on a romantic and sexual affair with a Cathar prefect, which Mr. Geared him and her both later came to believe was later reincarnated as Dr. Geared him. Oh, snap. Now, the, in the K-Pax, in the, in, the, in the movie version of this situation, it would be a very plain, sort of ordinary English woman coming to the doctor. And him not paying much attention to her and sort of like dismissing her until through hypnosis, she, he unlocks the secret and becomes attracted to her as... She suddenly speaks in this very seductive French accent instead of the boring 
Bath England accent that she came in with. And he, and yeah, I can see this film. I can see this film. Yep. And you were that prefect. And his whole thing was he was trying to integrate Freudianism and Jungianism with the then modern psychiatry of the 1960s. And that's what, and what a fun time the psychiatry of the 1960s were. And on top of this, he was friends with Colin Wilson. Because of fucking course he was. It writes itself. It writes itself. No, it, it literally fucking writes itself. This is, this is, this is, this is what I've said this before, I'll say it again, this is what Blighty should have been about. Yeah, it easily could be like, oh no, he's full of shit, but no, just be like, yeah, sometimes a bunch of Cathars reincarnate somewhere all at once. That's a great UA hook. Or you could do that with any of the, I mean, I swear to fucking God, dozens of different Gnostic sects that believed in reincarnation. Hell, maybe you could have more than one reincarnated Gnostic sect in a town at once. If I was going to have a cult, I, like, usually I don't like herpomancers and I think they're boring, but if I was going to have a bunch of herpomancers in my UA game, they would definitely be hillbilly ophites. Like, it would be amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> All in their high priest is a fucking Freudian. Yep. A Freudian that went out into the woods when mainstream psychiatry would no longer accept him. <laughs> Literally out the woods. Yes. All right. I like it. I like it. The Freudian psychologist. Yeah, he's fucking friends with Colin Wilson. God, like... Yeah. This writes its fucking stuff. And who, by the way, was like, Oh no, all this reincarnation stuff is great. Like, you should totally keep looking into this. This makes complete sense. And like, that is kind of an interesting thing. Like, at the time, at least, most psychiatrists and psychologists were, who were contemporary with him were like, like, judging from his books, he's handling all this the way you're supposed to. He's doing it with... This with the rigor that is required from our field. So maybe this is more of an indictment of Freudian psychiatry and hypnotism above all else. Another uh, UA like interpretation or application of this would be as a sort of uh, unconscious supernatural ability where he would like gain specific or vague information but accidentally turn people into cathars. Or to believing, or remembering that they're Cathars. I mean, that's kind of the overview of Gnosticism I have to give. Like, that's all the in really interesting shit I have. I mean, especially stuff that applies to the modern day, sort of when most UA games are set. Like, now you can easily run a UA game in in third century Egypt, easily. But most of people course. don't, so I think it's good to keep your resources to stuff that's kind of relevant to the modern day. I kind of have a way you could, almost. All right, throw it at me. Lay it mm. on me. Um, now, I just want to make sure that you, we're not gonna, you're not going to go into any of the uh, Gnostic influence on the Hermetic tradition, things like that. We're going to cover that in a future episode. Uh, that's kind of a whole can of work. And cause, like, cause yeah, it's not it's one problem. way. That's the problem. It's a continuous like back and forth. Like I mentioned, there were Hermetic texts found in the Nag Hammadi library. And... The uh, Emerald Tablet, oh, God, the Emerald Tablet I know predates Christ by several centuries. We haven't even dated it for sure, but we know it predates Christ. And that's like ground zero of the Hermetic tradition. Gnosticism runs parallel to the Hermetic tradition and they frequently influence each other. It's hard to really go into it too much without, you know, going into the huge rabbit hole that is Hermeticism in itself. That's fair. So I think a future episode ideas. Definitely Hermeticism, definitely the Kabbalah 
as well, because that would probably be its own one as well. We could do an entire episode about alchemy, which draws from all of these fucking things. And that's just Western alchemy, never mind Eastern alchemy. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a lot big difference between alchemy in the Middle East, alchemy in India, Chinese, external alchemy versus inner alchemy, and all this kind of thing. It, it's, it's, it's interesting shit. But let you do want to talk about more modern things. Yes. Yes, and we brought that in with some of the stuff with Bath, Kim, Bath and Kanye West. Yes, yes. Now, I would like to talk a bit about the paranormal experiences and religious revelations experienced by Philip K. Dick towards the end of his life. And these are not my stories. Um, these are real true facts. Uh, well, these are things that exist. Um, now, I first heard this story years ago on some podcast and what i remember of the story um it was they'd they'd framed it whatever it was they'd framed it as a dream that he'd had and this is probably i think this is during this period this is in the uh mid 1970s and he had a dream where he was in a bookstore and he was rummaging through magazines on the ground he rummaging through magazines and like books and pushing them out of the way and he finally finds a book and it was the same book every time. And this, this will come up. This phrase will come up again. And it was, The Empire Never Ended. February 20, 1974. Uh, Philip K. Dick, famous, well, not that famous, but um, prolific I'd author. say Philip K. Dick is pretty fucking famous at this point. Not in his life, sure. Now, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I was talking since 1974. Okay, yeah. Mildly, he was prolific, yeah. but not he was not famous, that famous. He was recovering from the effects of sodium pentothal, which he had had administered for the extraction of an impacted wisdom tooth. Mm. And he received a home delivery of Davon, which is dextropoxyphene, a analgesic in the opioid category, Ooh, um, from a young woman. Mm. Uh, and this... She, he was struck by her dark-haired beauty and was especially drawn to her golden fish-shaped necklace. And he asked her about it, and she said it was a sign used by the early Christians, which the, uh, Dick called the symbol the Vesicle Pisces, um, which, like, it, it appears that he, com he confused two symbols. Well, that's what they say, but maybe not. Maybe it's not a confusion. Maybe it's real. And he recounted that as the sun glinted off the gold pendant, the reflection caused the generation of a pink beam of light oh, that mesmerized him. And he became to believe that the beam imparted wisdom and clairvoyance and also was intelligent. There were other occasions he saw the appearance of the pink beam when he saw it imparting, well, he believed he saw it imparting information that his infant son was ill and they, 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 he and his wife watched his child hospital, and there was an illness. It was an illness. But after this, during this period, he began to experience a bunch of strange hallucinations. He, he described them as a, I experienced an invasion of my mind by a transcendentally rational mind, as if I had been insane all my life, and suddenly I had become sane. Um, so throughout 1974, February to March 1974, he began to receive uh, hallucinations of geometric patterns and occasionally brief pictures of Jesus and ancient Rome. Uh, he claimed to believe he lived two parallel lives, one as himself in the 1970s called Philip K. Dick and the other as Thomas 
a Christian persecuted by the Romans in the first century AD. And the transcendently rational mind behind the pink laser, he called many names, including God, Zebra, and most famously, VALUS, which was an acronym for Vast Active Living Intelligence System, which formed the basis of, or named the VALUS Trilogy, of which I've only read the first one. Uh, I should have read more. Um, but there's VALUS, The Divine Invasion, The Transmigration of Him the Archer, and an unfinished book called The Owl in Daylight. But the problem is, at this time, he was, he was kind of going a bit crazy. Crazy like a fox. He wrote a letter to the FBI in which he accused various people um, of being foreign agents of Warsaw Pact powers. As one does. We've all been there. The, the, the craziest idea he had, in my opinion, was that uh, the Polish author Stanislaw Lem was a false name used by a composite committee operating on the orders of the Communist Party to gain control over public opinion. The reason I believe this is the craziest, because the idea that the Polish Communist Party could put together a committee to write Solaris is... That's hilarious. Is no, yeah, it's that's... Nuts. No, no, no. I mean, like, there were a lot of weird connections between the feds and the science fiction community. I'm not going to doubt that. Uh, sure. God, who's the of big course. one? Uh, the guy who literally wrote the book on psychological warfare for the United States government, who was also a sci-fi author. Cordwainer Smith. Cordwainer Smith. Cordwainer Smith. Yeah. Fuck love Cornwallis Smith. Cornwallis Smith is really good. Cornwallis Smith is great, and also was an expert in psychological warfare. Yes, he was. I, I read, I read all his like most of his sci-fi, and I also, I even read his fucking spy novel, which is also really good. I, I'm fully in favor of, Con of Cornwallis Smith. Holy shit, that was, I, I, you just, you just threw me for a loop there. Fucking Cornwallis Smith coming in out of nowhere. Well, I'm not expecting. It. I'm like, fuck. There's a uh, ton of connections right, uh, between the science, science fiction <laughs> and the feds. Okay, back to back to Philip K. Dick. Yes, and so in, if you read Valus, which I haven't have, but not for a very long time, uh, I think I should probably read it now again. Like it combines lots of elements. Take from no, it's, it's a lot of Valentinianism, um, a lot of uh, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism. Kind of makes sense with the name Valus. Like yeah, it kind of feels like a Latinization yep. of Valentinian in some way. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but it's, it's that's just one of many strains. Yeah, Philip K. Dick wasn't so much. He wasn't, like, a scholar. Widely read. Not maybe well-read, if you get what I mean. He wasn't particularly yeah. diligent with scholarship. Well, and But he did have a powerful pattern-matching brain. I don't think that the hosts of this podcast can criticize... Oh, no, not at fucking all. Not at fucking all. Not at fucking all. So, there was lots in there, but he was referencing a lot of modern stuff. He referenced... Uh, we got old stuff like... Uh, Paracelsus, Schopenhauer, and Pascal, and but also like Carl Jung and Freud and Robert Anton Wilson. And like I said, he was very widely read. Yes, the Dogon people played a big part um, in that whole thing. Uh, multiple references to the discovery at in 1945 at Nakamadi. Uh, multiple references to Yadabath uh, or Samael. Um, and lots of references to pop culture of the time, The Grateful Dead, Frank Zappa. Um, it was a Philip Kiddick book. Yep. Characters that are clearly based on David Bowie. Lo like, lots of shit. Now, what he had, one concept I think is very interesting in his, what is called Dickian Gnosticism. Uh, there is actually several websites that go into it. It's people follow it. And I've always thought that um, we live in a kind, I, I wish we lived in the Neverwind timeline where instead of Scientology, we got 
Dickian Gnosticism as the main like science fiction author weird cult religion. I, I think well, Gnosticism just doesn't like, work too well oh, for man. the super hierarchical cults like that. That's the thing. Like, it can kind of work, but it, you you usually have to stretch it. That's true. That's true. Whereas if you just build something from whole cloth, you can be like, hey guys, I'm revealing wisdom. You want to find out your thetan count? Do this test. Yeah. You know, I get saying like Gnosticism is all pretty much always about wisdom. And in a sort of a sense, it's very democratic because of that. It's like you can reach this level of spiritual knowledge by literally reading and learning, either through a teacher or by yourself. That's right. Well, not, you know, it, not always by yourself, depending on the tradition, but yes, I agree. Um, usually from someone like Dick or like Gentilus or something. Uh, but one concept I really like is uh, the characterization of this, the Demiurge's prison for humanity. It was called the Black Iron Prison, which is often associated with um, specifically the Roman Empire. Um, in Valus, because his, his XP for himself in there, his self-insert that was named Horse Lover Fat, which is a... Uh, a play on his yeah. name. I think he's used um, that in a few books, hasn't hey, he? Dick. Yes, he does. He has. But uh, yes, that's his. That's his. That's his self-insert, yeah. and that's fine because he was writing about his own experiences in a fictionalized yeah. way, uh, which is cool. I like it. Um, but uh, it often it had one element where Horse Lover Fat had come across a perfect description uh, of the Black Iron Prison, but it was set in a far future world of a cheap science fiction book called The Android Cried Me a River, which is a reference to another book. And there's lots of references in Valus of this character, Horse Lover Fat, sort of living in a world that's a superimposition of ancient Rome, uh, 1970s, the 20th century California, and this far future world. And that, to me, is sounds like a great sort of Unknown Armies-esque, maybe, maybe it's a different, like, sort of setting. But it, it would be it. a fun way to play... You know, those three settings are very different, but very evocative and interesting. You know, ancient Rome, 1970s California, and then a weird far future world with, with like, um, Philip K. Dick. I, like, I can see how those yes, work yes. and see how those definitely dovetail. I do know that he he did make a lot of references to Gnostic as, like, specifically as, um, the, he called them the Grey Christians, and they could, like, see through the veil a little bit of the superimposition of Rome over California. And I like that. I like, it's like the Matrix, but it's just America is just Rome. Yeah. And oh, it's no, that not makes like sense. Rome colonized the world. Yeah, it's just, it's literally just Rome in the first. Yeah, century. that's the first thing that made, they just, came to mind. It's like, all right, Rome, America superimposed, both huge imperial powers with, at that point, yep. low spending empires. Yeah, no, that, that checks out. And that, that's the exact, and you know, a lot of the shit you see in the Bible and in text from this period are, in a certain sense, like you're you kept comparing them to like titles of political and radical texts. In a lot of cases, they literally are. There, a lot of this stuff is, while it might be literal um, in terms of the cosmology describing, it's also supposed to be have a lot of parallels and symbolism that are close to what people were experiencing at the time as part of the Roman Empire. Mm. It cuts between all these, like, the Roman legions bleeding in Germany and, like, in Mesopotamia, and then it immediately cuts to Vietnam. And it's like, eh, it was, it's just a bit too far, guys. Makes sense. No, I should check this out. This sounds like, like, you know, 
Valis, all that stuff was like, all right, so it's Philip K. Dick's hallucinations and he wrote a science fiction novel about it. But this sounds actually super fucking interesting. I, I had to read more of his shit in general. I have yeah. a big old compendium of all the short stories that I've had on my shelf forever that I never actually got around to finishing. Yeah. It's good. I'm sorry. Again, I, again, I just had a flash of an image in my oh, mind. Good. And it's the... Good. the it's the Roman legions marching with the standards, marching towards the forest, and it's like, down, down, down. I ain't no senator's son. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the way you kind of leaned into that seemed like you were headed towards something particularly UA directiony. I am curious about. Yes. That. All right. All right. Lay this on me. I, I, I sort of, uh, I've got a couple of ideas. One is just a bit more crazy than the other. Now, one thing I noticed, um, I came across this quote um, from the Apocryphon of John, um, with which the Demiurge Erica declares that he has made the world by himself. And the quote is, And now the Archon, who is weak, has three names. The first name is Yautabalth, the second is Sacklus, and the third is Samael. And he is impious in his arrogance, which is in him. He said, I am God, and there is no other God beside me, for he is ignorant of his strength, the place from which he had come. And I like the fact that he had three names, and it interested me that the second is fool. And I started to think, this, what if, what if we've been lied to, Frank? What if it wasn't the first and last man, and it wasn't the first man, it was always the first three and the final three? And the first, and one of the first three was always the fool, and perhaps the father is the other, maybe, or the mother or the parent. I think the fool, the, third, the mother, Samael, and the first and last man. And I'm thinking Samael could be the third. Accomplice is Godwalker, and this also ties in with. Um, and now, if there's a first three, there must, and the final three, I'm thinking human eternal, old mother apocalypse, and dot dot dot. That's what remains to be answered. That's I like very that. Inter so that actually, that's interesting <laughs> in a few ways. One of which is, okay, you remember I mentioned earlier that the aeons are often identified as archetypes, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in many Gnostic traditions, especially ones where Christ is an aeon, he is considered the archetypal man, the first man. Now, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, Comte, Saint Germain, Jesus, whatever, that's lazy as fuck but to say that he serves a very similar role in the gnostic cause in a more gnostic version of the ua cosmology being the one who brings wisdom to the world so that we may exit it to see reality that's magic Learning about yeah. magic is how you get started on an avatar path in the first place, isn't it? That's true. That's true. And often, like, people get started on the avatar path. If they're not unconscious, they often have, they'll often bring up some trigger event, and it's not necessarily related to, it's usually not related to avatar. It's related to other shit. And the Comte de Saint-Germain is often depicted as a teacher of magic and someone that revealed a lot of just generally hidden wisdom to people. And I would steal that um, old idea, um, probably from the Delta Green mailing list from the 90s, um, saying like that um, the sacred text. as Jesus is hacky, 
but that, that their idea was it wasn't it wasn't the Alatotep wasn't Jesus, he was St. Paul. Just steal that idea as the cop was St. Paul and Simon Magus. Oh <laughs> no, that's that easy. Maybe. That's 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 also just the fucking last temptation of the Christ spin on it. Maybe, maybe. But that's uh, yeah, 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 true, true. True, true, true. Perhaps a slightly more creative version is not that Christ was near our Lathotep, but he was something closer to Wilbur Waitley. That's, oh, God, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Anyway, that's a whole other yeah, topic. Let's not get into Lovecraft. We're, we're, we're humanocentric in this cave. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I do like this uh, this model. It does kind of interest me here, the gender imbalance at the start. If I was to say that if the... I had the father as the middle one, but I'm like, what if the mother is an early one? But the fool is usually a male figure. Compte also. I'd the say Samuel the fool can be genderless. Figure, the mother. The fool can absolutely. The fool is <laughs> devoid of gender. Like it's not even implicitly male. I'd argue. Like look at look at the illustration in those books. It's always it's often like that's, a jester that's kind of fem coded and it's kind of feminine true. in certain ways. That's true. And then I'm thinking of Bugs Bunny. Oh, up absolutely. Absolutely. Up yeah, absolutely. So that tracks, and, and that means that means that we've got the lady in terms of Old Mother Apocalypse, and we've got Eurebus with the Human Eternal, so maybe it's a dude we're waiting for, but it's not going to be the Comte this time. I don't the think the Rebus... Been, I mean, what's an, here's an interesting idea. What if the Human Eternal isn't even the Rebus? They're actually the Fool. Well, I would say that maybe... If this is the way it's gone, they might be the fool of the next cosmos. That would work. They're a paradox. They'd check out. They'd check out. So, and old mother apocalypse. It's a cosmic room of renunciation. Old mother apocalypse. She's the antinatalist. She'll go out and she'll become the mother, the first mother. So whoever is the last man is going to be the opposite of whatever the fuck the comp has been to us. And what was that? Is the question? Oh no! Oh no! I've, I've created the UA Antichrist. The Anticomp. No, this makes sense. When <laughs> the initial Trinity, you can call it a fucking Trinity, went in to the room of renunciation, or at least two of them did. Like, do we know who the? Uh, do we know who? I guess the quote-unquote official uh, Avatar of the Fool is. Is that no, established don't. ever? Okay. Okay. Like I could. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe, but I don't think so. And I don't think it matters because the the, the, the military training manual is uh, is not entirely accurate all the time. No, no, but, no. But uh, as warning, if there was like a quote unquote official military take on the topic, that is a very interesting. That is a very interesting proposition there. Now. It's, yeah, I guess then what we're waiting for is the archetype of the last man. Mm, last man standing. Well, and we know what the previous universe was. Um, it was a matriarchy. Ah, uh, that's... Oh, oh, yeah, well, are we sure about that? I've seen some hints. I've seen some hints. Uh, say what you will about Stolze. He does have decent sources. He might, he's, He lies a lot sure. of the time. When he's not lying to you, he's usually right. Mm, Get me? It's true. It's, it's rare that he's wrong on accident. It explains a lot about our current universe if the previous one was, you know, excluding, I guess, patches, quote-unquote, like what happened in uh, 03. The previous, like, real iteration of the universe being a matriarchy, I think, explains a lot. 
And I think it w- would sort of make sense if we went a bit too far in the other direction overcompensating. I like the idea that... I don't like the idea that 030303 was a, another, a reset. I do like it as a dev update. Yeah. You know, a patch. Um, and I know that... And my canonical source on that is the fact of the way rituals stop working because it's yeah. implied that there are regular updates. So I think 030303 was just a big... It was just a big update. Yep. And maybe it's a big final update if we created the two... It really did mean that the freak is a super important GMC. Oh, <laughs> and that's always much, been the case. But yeah. yeah, yeah, the freak is. As much as we sometimes compare about like uh, sort of Mary Sue, like uh, GM's favorite character ones, and I, I like the freak. The freak's all right, and I don't. If, if the not... freak is a GMC in Mary Sue, then that's a pretty decent take on that. Yeah, I would. I... <laughs> Mary Gary Sue, a Gary Sue. My, my my issue, if anything, is that turning them into the Human Eternal made them a lot more boring. Yeah, that's true. We've talked about this. Uh, this ways to make it more interesting, but yes, I like I like this. I like this as like a framework because it doesn't. It's not entirely. It's not completely heretical. It's mildly heretical. Any more thoughts on this particular one? Because I like got another uh, worse. Uh, All right, I want to hear that yeah. definitely. But um, no, I think that's an interesting idea. That um, as we've established, aeons are analogous to archetypes, and there's obviously some very like low level ones in that. Who do you need to start a world with fundamentally at the beginning? You need a mother to continue humanity. Mm-hmm. You need a fool because that's ignorance, mm-hmm. but it also represents the potential for knowledge. Yep. And you need a first man because, yep. well, someone's got to start this shit. It is, it is suggested that the human eternal does is always doing a bunch of shit. He's like very much, uh, very busy, very yeah. busy, very busy. I was watching a John Cleese speech from the early 90s yesterday that he was talking about the difference between the closed mind and the open mind and how the closed mind is very much concentrating on tasks at hand while the open mind is playing. And that would be the human eternal was always busy, always overworked. He's got a a bunch of things dealing with while the fool is creative, is creativity. So it's that's the room of renunciation bit like this. No, this works. This works. works And maybe... If you were gonna if you were gonna run an apocalyptic style UA game, this would might this would be a cool framework because the question would be a who would be the last man standing? Um, and then how can you influence who it's gonna be? Because this would be the kind of thing where yes, like it might be it might seem pointless because this universe is gonna be completely thrust down the toilet. And just revived, but maybe it's the same us. Maybe it's the same divine. Spark well, I'm in figuring some way. that's the way first first universe, right? Way way back at the start, mm. if there were any archetypes maybe. to begin with, it was those three, I guess. Yep. I mean, if there, if there was a first universe, if it's not eternal recurrence, all this come. Yes, exactly. It was not just an eternal recurrence, but all this comes. Oh back to no, it is. It is eternal. It is. It is. Let's let's, let's not get into that. Exactly why. We don't happen when we just. Disc- okay. No 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 no. No, and I, can, I, can last time. I can prove it with, I can prove it in three words. And those three words are three, three, three. No, that doesn't imply that it's recurrence. It implies that it's fractal. It's because maybe, I mean, it requires to me, it's like there are three and there's the three at the, three at the start, three at the end and three again at the start. It's, it's going over. It's, it's. It's a cycle. Well, there's three threes in that three, which in itself is a part of a greater triplicate. Yeah. 
So like, like, that this is, is where okay, no, this never is, went universes come from. It's Torpsil, that's this why. Is, this is what happens <laughs> when you contemplate that number for too long. We know this. We've both been through this. We, we both have these fucking nervous breakdowns like every other month. God, it's true. It's true. He's going to find me and I'll just be like, not a three, fucking game. Three, three, three. At least it's not one zero one zero zero one one zero one again. Well, you know what the fucked up thing to think about is? <laughs> what happens when you divide ten by three? Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. There you go. Let's, now, let's figure out. Let's figure out what. Who are the ten? That's the. Oh, that's the nine immortals plus one. Well. Who are the, Ten divided by three is three point three 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 three. I know, I know, I know that, but I'm, I'm trying to say, what is ten? What is ten? Who are the ten? Who are the nine? Who the fuck are the nine? I was talking about the nine immortals from. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, because number of archons. Am I talking about archons? Actually, that's a good segue into my next horrible theory that keeps that that. And this is, I, I was trying to find a way to bring this in and keep it as humanocentric horror. I, and I, 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 I fear I've gone too far because my initial thoughts were, I was thinking about pantheism, the idea that God exists within everything in the universe. Everything's a part of God. And all of and it's I was conscious. About, yes. And I was wondering if I could sort of redefine things because as I might've sort of, it might've implied a few times, I listening to the stories from Valentinian um, tradition and Sethian tradition, I, they read to me as propaganda. A propaganda against Yaldabaoth, against Dermhiurch. I kind of start to feel like, I feel that this guy, he, he is out of nowhere, doesn't know what is going on, tries to do some what he thinks is good, tries to create a world for himself, or itself, or herself, or whatever, and gets fucked with by powers beyond its control. And I'm like, I started to feel sympathy for it. And I thought, think, started to think, maybe, maybe this is what we are. Maybe the divine spark is just Yadabath. We're all part of God, and this is the trap we're in. But I think it's worse. I think well, it's worse. Well, this sounds kind of similar it's to some of the stuff I've heard from Christian adepts, where they're like, okay, there's the invisible clergy, but then above that, there's there's the ultimate archetype, and that's my boy Christ. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. But I, and I, that, that's actually not a great, that's not a bad idea that sort of implies that we're imprisoned together, but one day we'll get out, we're, we're going to break out of this cage and we'll all be, we'll be with oneness again and we're, and we're going to build our, our, and we're going to get away from this fucking bastard, this monad, and we are going to make our own fucking universe with fucking mud and bones and dick and, and, and badge and oh, it will be amazing and, and other things, we don't have to do that, we don't have to be dualistic. Don't the four important components of any universe. <laughs> That's right. That's all you need. Right. <laughs> but I believe I've come up with something worse. Much, 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 much worse. You've been hyping us up our entire trip to Egypt. I was thinking about the cruel ones. and well, I'd, um, I'd recommend avoiding I, doing that too much. Yeah, I know, uh, I know, I know, I know. I, um, I, 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 one I, of the reasons... Are you sure this is a response? One of the reasons of why of we're one of the reasons why they're here is also one of the reasons why I brought Paula. Okay, um, I think we're fine. Uh, if we are in trouble, just 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 no, she's around. She's around. She's all right. She's all, right all right. All right. All right. That that whip um, is it, it, it's designed to hit two things: uh, frank and cruel ones. Now, 
Don't we won't. Don't this entire can oh. this entire mountain's just gonna fucking blow up. Maybe, maybe. We'll see, we'll see. Now the cruel ones they target those in the pursuit of life and death. Uh, because and why would they do that? There must be some kind of threat to them or something. Something about sure. demons. And what are demons? Um demons are obsessions that are calcified. Yep. But an obsession isn't an obsession is nothing. An obsession is intangible. You need something to have an obsession. There needs to be something to have an obsession. A person has an obsession. Personality has an obsession, but a demon is all obsession. But it, it must be around something. And I started to think, what if it was just obsession that was calcifying around a divine spark, some kind of part of consciousness? And that's well, why they're driven. No, that, they're not a real that, person. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. Yeah, that least, makes sense. Well, no, like um. Obsession is the spear point of the will. Yes. And I'm like thinking like, okay, but what is this divine spark? But what if, what if, what if we are not Yaldabaoth? What if this is a prison, but it's the Demiurge. We're not trapped by the Demiurge. The Demiurge is trapped by us. That is the point of consciousness. To bind each divine spark with a hierarchy of needs and opinions and passions and identities and obsessions. That's what we are we're the bars and we're the cage and we're the walls and we're the cctv we're the panopticon that keeps yaldabaoth in here we're the bullets in the rifle of the men in the watchtowers and that's all we've ever been we are fucked we're finite we're not designed to last either physically or spiritually we've got inbuilt planned obsolescence we're just the bars and this is the great spiritual injustice. The Demiurge or the Sophia is, or whatever it is, is trapped in here. And maybe it's just manifest. It's trying to get out. And that's what magic is. That's what creates other space beings and unnatural entities and artifacts. And the green glass grail and rituals. And that's why we have the sleepers coming and taking it out. That's why these get... This is the magical concerns getting subsumed into mundane goals, which we think is always, oh, that's great for a campaign, but what if that's the point? What if that's the point? We're, we're, we're meant to keep him, keep him or her or they in here. And that's all we've ever been. How does the... Well, all right, fuck. Um, I mean... This this applies to even like a higher. We aren't even necessarily trapping the demiurge, right? It could be like the demiurge created us to trap the higher god, or something, right? That's also we're that's also possible. Think of it like this, right? We're our bodies, our minds, our vessels. We're basically a retirement home for the divine. That the shithead son, the demiurge just shoved God into to keep them away to keep keep them from being something that the Demiurge or whatever has to deal with we're an old folks home for gods and again again you're you're leading back to the like what you've been taught by the Valentinians and the Sethians well, okay, and all that. Okay. And I'm thinking it might be uh, at it's this the point, idea, it's like at the, this point you can use Monad and Demiurge interchangeably because they're obviously on similar levels of power, right? Like possibly, but it seems that whoever's on the outside has more power. Yes. I'm thinking maybe our universe is just the equivalent of that room 
where that Austrian kid was kept for years and years and years and wasn't like separated from the rest of the world. We don't know what else is out there. Maybe there's a whole higher universe of, of maybe this is just another space. How does maybe, the clergy fit into all this? Place. How's the clergy fit into all this? That's my question. What the, that's just another part of us. We make the clergy. All it's right. just it's just another it's another part of the cage. Like right. it's, but it's a it's way a of, part of the cage channeling magic. Keeps itself perpetuated, right? It's it keeps itself contained yeah. if the every time the fools running the asylum are cycled out with new ones. Yeah. And that's it. That's it. It's um avatars have magic, but they're forced along a path that ends up with them ascending into the they become the warden, basically, the wardens. Adepts maybe are the the equivalent of the whatever this kid acting out drawing shit on the walls uh the drawing with shit on the walls of this place he hasn't been able to he or she hasn't been able to leave well yeah like, i figure this is either all right we're we're a cosmic timeout we are the room you go to without supper television and are kept there until the next morning and maybe that next morning never comes or we're a cosmic retirement home where um good old granddad is shuttled off to so we don't really need to worry about him anymore and really the only difference between that those two things is the question of who came first and i think that's not really a question of our concern because i think it's an important the thing is you don't need like in this sort of formation the demiurge doesn't have to be the your typical omnipresent omnipotent oh, omni uh omniscient and omnibenevolent god it just has to be sufficiently powerful that you and and wise and like strong that you need an entire universe to contain it but that's not necessarily the same as that conception of god and billions of minds and wills to contain it yes and that's bigger but it's not the infinite it's not no it's not the idea it's just it looks it would look like of course it would look like god to us or the demiurge or whatever but it's it's just a big thing uh it's, it's a big the bigger it's a bit it's turtles all the way down sort of thing the, the the core thing is that we are a prison that's that's the core of it who came first who came afterward and that's the matter We're and that's a prison it. for something and it's so typical that we as our in our egocentric way We've interpreted it as we're we're in the prison. Where how can we get out? No, 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 no. We're not. We're not in the prison. We're never been. We are the prison. What happens when you have Gnosticism and then you extract the mind-body dualism? You get something a lot like this, I think. Yeah, because the 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 divine spark isn't. It's something that it does. You could say it's, but it, but our it's not something we have is, access is, to. Is, is, it's just it's just no. there. It's a seed, but that's it. And our, the mystery of our consciousness is not to do with like, oh, our soul. Our consciousness is our soul. It's our consciousness is one. Of, it, it's 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 sticky paper keeping. It's 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 a webbing. Yeah. It's 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 a juicy. It's it's complicated and contradictory and paradoxical. It's a, it's a battery we're charging off of. We are the matrix. That's right. That's right. That's go. gonna stick with there me. There. Fuck. That's rough. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That, I told you it's an existential crisis, and I think it's a fresh one. I don't know. I haven't. Oh, I've never heard that. I, you could probably find every look somewhere, but yeah, like that's that's a fucked up notion. Shit. I know. Like I, the, all the demiurge stuff had led me to kind of. Yeah, I, I rail against the clergy a lot, but you know, in a sense, it allows me to like empathize with them because I mean, they keep. You keep trying. Like I don't think there's that much continuity from universe to universe, right? Like how many. How many avatars, how many archetypes, 
how many God Walkers do you think have stuck around from like for a few universes? Three. Like oh, no, I I don't know. Not um, many. Not many, if any. Not many. I think there's some probably some parallel evolution going on sometimes, but generally when I think of previous Cosmi, I think that they're probably quite different. Yeah, they're probably totally unified different in, um, And there is still that humanocentrism, but what is human? I mean, that's a question that, that a million sci-fi books are based on. So, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> the dolphins have their own clergy. We don't worry about it. <laughs> but, like, in a sense, it, the, the way the clergy works, just with the time scales involved and amount of people getting rotated in and out, it's probably not a lot of, so to speak, institutional continuity, right? Probably not. And it's not like you can really verify, like, oh, yeah, that guy's been around for as long as he says he has. You don't fucking know. They're just all just as capable of lying as we are. Except maybe the fool, which is interesting. I remember correctly, there is some avatar that's not allowed to lie. Oh, God. I, I'm just imagining... If there was someone who, like, someone by, like, hiding in another space or another dimension or something, which is still implied to exist in some of the older works, hmm. somehow survives the cosmic uh, reset over multiple times like and we know that there are like there are spirits that survive from previous yeah. universes like us epitola and stuff i could easily imagine that like the cosmos never repeats but sometimes it rhymes as being how it works it's like poetry thanks lucas the comp is the key to all of this comps get all this Mitchell's the key to all this what um <laughs> what, I'm, what i'm getting at is that you know, the way the clergy works, they keep making, they probably keep making the same fucking mistakes over and over again, because nobody is around long enough to remember to not do yeah. that again, and if anyone that is around long enough probably can't convince the rest of them. And uh, maybe they they figured it out, but what are they going to do about it? Or, what and about what, it? when they do learn from their mistakes, they keep running into new ones, right? Like, because they aren't perfect. The invisible clergy aren't divine entities. They're up there because they're the most human of all of us. Yeah. So of course they're fucking up, and of course they keep fucking up again and again, and it's just demiurges all the way down. They keep trying to make the next universe be one that works, and it fucks up, and they're probably thinking like, okay, we'll try this one, we'll beta test it, we'll we'll experiment a bit, see yeah. what it takes to, at the very least, create a universe that will create a perfect clergy, because then they'll probably... make a perfect universe, but... It's probably a big question of, in their minds, like, like invisible clergy internal politics is probably all about this sort of shit, and you know that they're manipulating shit all the time to try to keep. They don't, maybe they don't. We're gonna have different. Some members of the clergy are gonna be accelerationists for like cosmic ideological. <laughs> all right, we've already Others figured out this one sucks. Go on to the next one. <laughs> Go on to the next one. The only yes. way out is through. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that's that's what happens. Like some are pull, uh, some are trying to slow things down. Only we can only we can shut the darkness, kind of shit. And others are trying to just go through. And sometimes, even even if the ones who are the most conservative, even if the conservative faction, the conservatives, and the progressives in the invisible clergy, even if the conservatives are ascendant, you'll still get stuff like the naked goddess coming out of nowhere. Yeah, um, you can't stop it. And that puts them in a position that they're not just these gods like lording over the world. They're com they're competing with each other, and they're compete they're fighting against a process which is out of their control because it is us. It's it's we who like the naked goddess. They didn't see her coming. 
They I mean, they did. The energy I'm sure at least one of them saw her coming at some point. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, yes, we can see everything. I think that, and I, this is going to lead into another episode. I'm not sure how I much she faked they, in her videos, but from what I've been told, most of those were sincere. Probably sometimes. Uh, you know, everyone does. It's, it, everyone it's does. It's a living. We're human. Well, even even if you aren't a porn star, everyone knows <laughs> it. I really do think that the Invisible Clergy spent a few years trying to keep a particular archetype from rising, from ascending, and that was the fall of the keys. That was Alex Abel. That's what happened to him. And I think I know how and why it happened, but that is the story for a future episode. The thing to keep in mind with the clergy, I think, is that anytime one of them comes up with a plan, there's, you know, at least like 99 others that have their own opinions on that. You know, this is what the Gnostics kind of get around with the whole oneness of God thing. When there's that divine hierarchy, then it's easy to explain an overall plan, and it's easy to get shit done, in a sense that's consistent and feels, well, like there's an intellect behind it. And there's a clergy? Yeah. It's like any other representative democracy, right? They're all bickering with each other all the time. This actually could be tied into Buddhism in a way. Uh, and I'll just briefly mention it briefly, because one thing... We should touch on this, because that's something that yeah. gets brought up a lot. It could parallels between Gnosticism and Buddhism. So, yeah, go for it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the parallels with the invisible clergy at the moment. In terms of like in lots of uh, Buddhist Buddhist traditions, it they reappraise like Hindu ideas of the time, which had like the gods as being like the, the gods, you know, having a great time up there. And in certain certain interpretations of Buddhism, not all, but certain that there are some of the ideas of it's it's a, it's a whole wheel of time thing. It's like the gods are too busy having a great time and have too many responsibilities and great powers, so they're never going to achieve enlightenment. And like hungry ghosts, your demons and your animals, they're, they, they're too low and they've got too much shit going on. They're too, like, it's only humans that are at the right spot that they possibly could achieve Nirvana. But if you get too high up, if you, if you, if you reincarnate in a too low or too high body, you're fucked. You're just going to be like, you're too busy. Like being, being a god is just like drugs and sex all the time and stupid soap opera shit as we've covered before. But so it's kind of like that for the clergy as well. And the thing is, that ties in with the grand illusion of the universe. And what is the source of all suffering in Buddhism is like wanting things, like needing things, right? So it's desire. And as you said before, the invisible clergy like us are trapped in the world of our desires. So could be Buddhism. There's a Buddhism reading of the Anonami's cosmology too, so I, I feel safe. I feel happy. I feel yeah. more relaxed now. Yeah. Uh, ex existential crisis passed. Thanks, Siddhartha. Uh. <laughs> yeah, there. I mean, I figure it's kind of like any other, the, any other like council-based government, right? Everyone involved is only doing their job just as much as required for them to keep their position. Right? Yeah. Just just that as much. That's true. And, I mean, I think the, the really important question that this brings up is 
What's the invisible clergy's candy desk? What? What? Wait, what? Candy desk. Uh, in I believe it's the House of Representatives. It might be the Senate. Oh, they have a they have a candy desk. Is that what it's literally like? This? Tradition in the U.S. Senate since 1968, whereby a senator who sits at a particular desk near a busy entrance keeps a drawer full of candy for members of the body. Oh, yeah. The current yeah, occupant of the candy desk is Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey. <laughs> well, that's a powerful position. Oh, I'll remember yes. that for a political game. Also, there's um there's one question. I, I have another I have another theory for you. Um, you, you know those sort of great um social or cultural movements that take over the world and spread for a while and have an yeah. ethos and then they sort of fall off and they disappear. What if that's just the the invisible clergy equivalent of the filibuster? That checks out. <laughs> That checks out. Well, no, like, it, it, it's the same dynamics. It's the same fucking dynamics. And that's yeah. why things are as chaotic as they are. And frankly, it's why it's why things are as chaotic as they should be. Because, you know, if you just have one ultra-powerful guy running everything, then, like we see in the Demiurge, it can fuck things up a lot. When you got, like, hundreds of them all bickering with each other, well, then there's those gaps for your own will to assert itself and that's important too and that's that would actually be like it's a it's a um i don't know it's a life affirming it's like an evolution affirming idea that like there's certain aspects of human nature which seem to be like always around like have been through like from early parts of things things we don't like or at least on an aggregate yeah that on, on an aggregate and like you could like you could do something like i'll say like um misogyny or uh slavery or anything like that you could say no, no, it's just there's, a, there's, a, there's an archetype up there and they've been talking for thousands of years and our cosmic objective is to fuck up the filibuster. <laughs> there you go. And it could even be a whole campaign where you go from, you just, you're just fucking up, you're trying to weaken progressively more significant filibusters until you get to the very top. That is a hell of a campaign. We've thrown out like five fucking campaign ideas this this episode this is what we do play at least, at least. <laughs> that's what happens yep we, we we have we have the idea guide platform and we're using it well uh, well hey you actually write shit so i'm gonna put that evil <laughs> on you but it does sound like we're kind of uh coming to a close here so i do legitimately hope that any listeners come away from this with uh, at least a somewhat better understanding of gnostic Oh god, we didn't even get the Mandaeans, and the Mandaeans are fun too. The Mandaeans oh. are still around. They're yes. a Gnostic they group they that uh, they identify themselves with the Sabians in the Quran. They're still around. As Thomas brought up earlier, the a lot of the uh, political upheaval, not just the U.S. government, just a lot of shit that's happened in their part of the world, primarily in Iraq. We found old copies of the religious texts and compared it to current ones. They match almost exactly. And they're in America. There's big communities of them in Detroit and San Antonio and Southern California. So if you're running a campaign in any of those and want to bring in some Gnostic elements, do some research in the Mandaeans. They're an interesting group. Yep, yeah, that sounds good. Anything else you want to mention, Torrenson, before what, we what? What? find our way out of this fucking cave? What the fuck is... Uh, did you turn the bell on? Why is it ringing now? What? Well, of course I didn't turn the bell on. I didn't fucking bring the bell.
Uh, yeah, yeah, all right, hold on, hold on. Paula! Paula? Oh, fuck. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Go, 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 go! go, 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 go. go.